Good evening. This is RJ with the IWS podcast, and I am joined by my brothers Isaiah and Travis. Good evening, brothers. How are y'all doing tonight? Good evening. Doing phenomenal. Good evening. I'm doing well. Good to hear. Good to hear. So I know I got the chance to talk to each of you briefly one-on-one about the purpose of what tonight is going to be about. But just to restate for the viewers and the listeners, the purpose of these conversations that we have on this platform is largely surrounding mental health, both for individuals who are in the field practicing and also for people who are just on their journey, you know, working on themselves, self-discovery. And so that's going to be a large focus of what we're going to talk about tonight. And I appreciate, you know, anybody who finds some value from this discussion, because I think it's going to be quite exciting. This is the first time I get to have two people simultaneously. So I'm very, very excited. So without further ado, I'm going to start with you, Travis, as a fellow provider. I would like to ask you if you can give us a brief summary, if you will, of some of your background and your upbringing um, as you were growing up and like your family dynamics in the home. Sure. Um, I grew up in a single parent household, raised predominantly by my mother, um, with my grandmother playing a large role in my upbringing and my aunt also. Um, I grew up in a rural environment. So I grew up in a small city, small town called Thomason, Georgia, which I love, but it has its own unique dynamic. It was a factory town that lost Mm. one of its major factories and it changed the economic landscape of the community a lot. Um, I grew up with my mom actually working in one of the plants here called Coar Graphics, which is a printing plant, um, while taking care of me. So she worked in the beginning long 12-hour shifts and then transitioned wow. to those eight-hour shifts. Um, I think this very stereotypical young man growing up playing, move between sports. I say stereotypical in certain ways. In certain ways, I was an oddball. Um, so I grew up playing sports and then at the same time loving going to the library, reading books, I'm loving comic books, things that, you know, guys are just generally into. Oh, yeah. But looking at my upbringing, father didn't really play a strong role in my upbringing until later on. Um, Then I gained a stepfather, but I gained him around the time I was in high school. So during my transition out of my younger years. And then now me and my father have kind of a close relationship. So it's a different upbringing, I think, in the sense that I have the benefit of saying me and my bio dad, as I call him, is tight um, right now. No, that's awesome, man. I mean, I'm sure you know from your experience, I can definitely say from my experience, there's a lot of people from the community uh, that I think largely that we come from that are in similar circumstances as you described, you know, single parent household, largely predominantly mom driven. And I'm always a big believer in talking a lot about the impact of what happens when you're missing either parent, not necessarily mm-hmm. just the father, but particularly when you're talking about young men and when you remove the father from the home where he chooses to not be present, the, the long-term impacts that that can play. Yeah. And I'm sure we're probably going to get into that later, but that's always an ongoing discussion that I want us to, to constantly be aware of because I think sometimes we don't give it necessarily the level of seriousness uh, that it really deems necessary. Uh, but to you, Isaiah, I would ask you the same question, sir. Can you give us a little bit about your upbringing, your background, sort of how how you got here? 
How I got to this point? Well, I'm a military brat, so technically I'm from nowhere, but I landed in Gwinnett County, Georgia, Atlanta, for those that's not privy. Back in 2001, um, spent majority of my time there, so I guess I could claim it. I went into the military myself, oddly enough, ironically enough, um, about four years back. So that's majority of my story. Um, mm. I work in the IT slash tech industry for the past about five or six years. Um, and so my upbringing is my dad's kind of like an electrician technician. I'm mm. not going to say I followed in his footsteps because uh, I grew up in a household with both parents physically present, but one holistically present. So mm-hmm. I had this kind of like weird twisted thing where I grew up with a father in a household feeling like I grew up without a father in the household. I think that plays its own weird psychological, like my psyche probably plays on me because mm-hmm. I had someone to look to, but I had no one to go to in that matter. Yes, sir. And I don't know if it's, whether it's good or worse or not. Like the old, not to say it's a trope, it needs, like you said, it needs to be spoken of, but usually in African-American communities, it's the father's out of the home. Yeah, what if, but what if he's there? He's still not present. So that's, of course, affected me. Um, but I, I'm a therapy attendee. I started therapy when I was in a, in a marriage a few years ago, and then I decided to just go by myself. Um, it was never weird or awkward. Uh, I went to therapy once as a very young child. Uh, my mom put me in therapy, thank God. So I think that kind of allowed me to seek it without any barriers or stigma, at least in my mind. And I'm an avid mental health uh, advocate, so to speak. Uh, two years, I went strong for therapy, took a break, then went back into counseling, been going another year and some change. And so that is what brought me here. No, nah, man, that's beautiful. First of all, shout out to your mom for putting you in therapy because of what you just said, not even being considered about the barriers or any type of resistance that you might feel and even participating. Um, but I got to touch on that, what you just said, man, because that, number one, I completely resonate with that. I grew up predominantly with my father. My mom passed away when I was really young. So it was just me, my dad, and my older sister. And But to your point, and I usually use that term a lot, actually, when I'm talking to clients, I'm like, sometimes you have pre- you have parents that are physically present, but emotionally absent or unavailable. And that's exactly how I feel. My father was what I would consider, based on my experience talking to other brothers who grew up with dads, typical, where they were kind of the be seen, not heard type. Mm-hmm. Do well, so I don't need to really talk to you. You know, I'm, I'm spending all my energy working hard, trying to provide. And I, for me, I always gave him a lot of credit, um, single parent trying to do it for two children. Like, I have nothing but respect because that's really hard. So I don't take anything away from that. Um, but to your point, what happens though when you're still missing that fundamental piece? And I'm also a father, I have an 11 year old son. And so I think a lot about what happens when you're missing that level of comfortability and vulnerability with your father. Because to me, I think a lot about the primary relationship we have with our parents, right? So if I have my mom there and I develop a healthy relationship and love for her, then it will be a bit easier for me to eventually, if I'm heterosexual, let's say, fall in love with a woman and be comfortable to pursue her because I, I feel stable and I feel grounded, right? And then my father, it would make it easier for me to maybe befriend other men, be open with other men, maybe allow me to trust other men. 
But if I don't have that example, because it's don't talk about it, then yeah, I'm going to be, you know, guards up all the time. And I feel like sometimes that's what leads to this sort of really heightened macho attitude and disposition that we have in our community. And that's not even talking about like, you know, gangs and things like that. So that's what comes up for me when you share that. And I see it a lot. That's why I usually talk about parenting so much. So I don't know if there's anything you want to add to that, but that's- I was about to say, and being being a husband, like not just if you were raised by a dad who's there and present. And let's say mine was married, but yours, if you say your mother passed it and have the opportunity to maybe as an adolescent, see how our marriage is supposed to work, how a man who is a husband is supposed to work. I technically didn't, I saw that, but I technically didn't see it. And I'm saying that to say- I didn't see him be an optimal, the ultimate husband and um, father at the same time. And it's like, he didn't even really have a balance, so to speak. It was just like, yeah. blah. So you know what I'm saying? So that's what I'm, that inadvertently, or not even inadvertently, directly affected me to being a horrible husband when I was, did get married. And, with, and that's how I started, like I said, like how I started therapy was marriage counseling. But then I went myself, but I had to go to marriage counseling because I did not have a base or a foundation watching a man be a even good. Let's just say good husband and think not thank the Lord. I would have loved to have the child at that time. But if I did, I would have fumbled that. And so to speak. So, yeah. But yeah, I mean, you're talking about a lot of the implications, I think, that that can happen. Right. These are like the inherent risks. And, um, you know, this is this might come up again later, but. Obviously, there's generational divide. Some I don't know, Travis, if you talk about this a lot, but I you know I get some brothers and sisters when I talk to them and we're like, well, what's different between us and our parents' generation? They'll say, oh, well, you know, we have access to more information and, and we are more emotionally aware. So that's why it's it's not as hard for us to to not only become therapists or to go to counseling and not feel some kind of way, but it was fundamentally easier. There was less uh, barriers. And I don't know how I feel about that. I don't, I don't know if I, as a parent, I don't know if I fully agree because I feel like that's kind of giving a pass to say like, you didn't have to try as hard because the consequence of that is I have to inherit all of your trauma. I have to inherit all of the maladaptive behaviors, dysfunctional behaviors, because as Isaiah just said, I only know what I see. And I didn't have a good example, so I don't. I can't even imagine it because I have no point of reference. Mm-hmm. Travis, have you have you seen anything like that, like in your practice or just with people that you've known, like coming up? I can definitely agree because one of the concepts that I'm fascinated by is multi generational trauma. So it's the idea that another party's lived experience will impact or shape your lived experience. And so, as you said, sometimes we'll allow a past to be given to certain individuals because we're looking at well, this is how they were raised. This is their lived experience. And so, therefore, that's why they act the way they acted throughout my experience. And I think there's some credit to that. There's some credit to, I only know what I know, and I'm only exposed to what I know. And I can only act or react or not act on things that I am aware of or not aware of. So I give some credit to that, but then I look at it from an individual standpoint. At any point in time, was this person able to access that information? At any point in time, was it introduced to them? Was that conversation ever had with somebody? Maybe you didn't go out and seek a counselor because in your generation, counselors were not the prevalent thing to go seek. But were there these spiritual leaders that offered similar services 
that you go out and pursue them? Were there other guys within the community that you sought out to help shape your journey? You know, I know as a male, it can be difficult. You know, as I mentioned earlier, I grew up in a predominantly female-oriented environment. And so going to have that one-on-one interaction with guys based off of my personality, because I'm growing around all these females, sometimes that level of comfort isn't there because I'm like, well, what are we going to talk about? I'm, the conversations I hear at my table or more like my mother played sports. She was a star athlete, but we, mm. she wasn't watching sports. Like that wasn't the thing. And so the thing that generally bonds individuals to just to navigate or negotiate or have a conversation, I wasn't talking that lingo a lot of times. So I was going, oh, you know, I read this book or um, I wasn't into some of the things my mother was in, but I'm like some of the music she was in. I'm like, oh, I can talk about old school R&B. Um, I can talk about these particular topics that are of less interest to you because that's not the type of conversation you're usually engaging in. Mm-hmm. And so I give some credit to individuals due to lack of exposure saying, well, you know, this is their situation this is their dynamic at the same time i'm like i had access to certain experiences that i was resistant to i can own take ownership of there were guys in my life that reached out across the board but because of my attitude i resisted to them mm-hmm. so i had to take ownership on that part to say well the part of that was my experience yes i was young yes i wasn't fully aware didn't have the knowledge base that i had now hindsight is always 2020 2020 um, so when I look back at it, I'm like, why did I make that move? But where I was in life is where I was in life. And, I get credit that. and so I acknowledge when individuals say, well, this is a different generation. They have different access. You know, there's a level of comfort there. But then I look back and say, well, there was different figureheads that maybe were not licensed professional counselors, but you, they could have engaged in. Do we take ownership of the, the, the older guy that was reaching out and said, hey, man, you're acting a little wild. You're acting a little crazy here. Hey, young buck step in line and you were like no i'm not listening to you i don't want to hear what you're saying you have nothing to say to me and then you avoided some of the resources you had because i think that's credit to that too sometimes resistant to the resources oh yeah no 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 doubt and i and i agree that to me would be like a nice synergy between what like an older person might say why they hadn't done anything to deal with their stuff and what a younger person might say well you know we do have more access so it would be a little bit easier Cause I'm very big on accountability and choices. And so again, to Isaiah's point, I'm like, man, I'm, it might be hard for me again to, to replicate something that I've never seen because I don't know what it looked like. If you try to think the two generations back, you might say, oh, well, maybe my grandfather didn't demonstrate the best behavior to my father. So of course he didn't demonstrate it to me. Point taken. This, this would be my only counter as a father. But when you look at your child, there's certain moments I feel that you know that something might be off. You know that your behavior, your response might be somewhat overdoing it, overbearing, inappropriate. At what point do you see that experience and you're like, yeah, but I'm gonna just keep doing that. I'm just gonna keep, I'm, 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 I am not interested in trying a different way because what do we say? What a lot of us in our community, but that's just how we do it. Go get that switch. Go get that belt, right? We know what that is. We joke about it because it's kind of funny when you're not dealing with it. But in the moment, I will speak for myself. I was terrified. I was never comfortable in my living environment. I was always anxious because that's how my father was. He made the household. My father was in the Navy, by the way, Isaiah. So very strict environment. I also was Army for for a period of time. So I know what that felt like, but 
why do I even make that point right now? Because when I think about my son and other people who are having children, I'm like, listen, you want to make your child feel like that? Oh, no, of course not. Exactly. You see something's wrong. You're like, man, they don't want to talk to me. They're kind of distant. They seem kind of like jittery or afraid. That's when you could go talk to your faith leader. Then you don't want to talk to a therapist. Go talk to your pastor. Go talk to your deacon. Go talk to your auntie. Go talk to somebody, but don't say, I didn't know any better. That's the only little bit of pushback I give because I think, of course, I want all of us to, to do this work and engage in it, right? To do a lot of repair work and unlearn certain bad behaviors maybe that we learned. But I also want us to have that accountability and say, yeah, it would. we can say it was probably harder or a little more difficult to access, but let's not you know, completely wash it away and say, well, you know, they did the, uh, only the best that they could do. Because I do think there's a, there is a portion that there is an opportunity that maybe a little more could have been done because I'm always thinking about the next generation. How do we create less trauma, less stress, again, less negative behaviors, less attitudes? And those are some of the things that always come up for me. So I appreciate the, the feedback there. Um, I'm going to go back to you, Travis. Again, you being the one of the providers here. I'm always curious because I always want to know why we go into this field. So mm -hmm. naturally, I want to ask you, what drove you to even want to pursue a career in mental health counseling? It's weird because I say, again, not a unique story because I think a lot of mental health professionals, when they go into our field, it's because they've lived through something or experienced something that drives their desire to want to work in our field. Because surely, unless you're of a certain caliber, it's not the money initially. It is the <laughs> no, idea of like, this is what I want to do because I want to give back. I want to make a change or throw a pebble in that ocean somehow. And so yeah. my story is very similar to a lot of other individual stories in the way of my best friend growing up was my grandmother, my maternal grandmother. Um, I was a fun to her nonstop. Uh, it could be argued by many that I was not her favorite, but I was her favorite. There are people that will argue are only haters, and we don't deal with haters. Because um, I stayed near her nonstop. If she was just a, if I needed something, wanted something, if I wanted to get out of a whooping, I run to grandma. Hey, grandma, yeah. mom's showing out now. You need to, you need to get her in line. And she's like, don't hit that baby. Don't do nothing. I'm like, safe, clear. Um, so I grew up around her, and she, I idolized her. I idolized everything she did. Um, the lady I grew up around was very spiritual, very caring, very nurturing, community oriented. Anybody could come around her and she would be there for, for them. She would have something to say to them positive. I don't remember my grandmother ever being angry. But the other side of that is that she dealt with mental health concerns throughout my entire life. Um, there were stories that was told to me of when I was a child where she was making me cereal and she had to feed me and she's making cereals, grabbing random stuff out the cabinet and she gets to finally finds the cereal, start pouring water and start pouring water. And like, you got to eat, you got to eat and being very um, driven by making me eat and not being fully aware in her mind. And, you know, mm. back in the day, they just say, you know, she just has nerve problems. Um, <laughs> now, you know, I have official diagnosis what that nerve problem actually meant. Right. But, you know, sometimes she's just off and you just kind of let her be off and then she comes back. And I grew up with it. And I grew up watching the impact of those in her life and how it changed her. I grew up for her. Her faith was the thing that carried her. Her spirituality, mm -hmm. her connection with God, her connection with her faith was the thing that got her to the other side of her mental health concerns. But I also saw the impact of mental health professionals in her life. 
as I mentioned earlier, I'm from a small rural town. The access to mental health services was there, but not very well spoken about. And then when you're going into those services, you very rarely find individuals that look like us in those services. And so the quality and the level of care, the understanding of cultural dynamics was not always there for her. And so I saw her go through therapy and sometimes be impacted in a negative way by the psychiatrist or the therapist that was providing her treatment. I saw psychiatrists overprescribe her medication and mm. it altered her mindset. I, as well as I saw some great therapists who once she was in treatment with them, I saw some movement forward, some progress. And so my journey begins with her. I always, I always joke, I said, if I ever write a book, I'm like, it probably be titled The Journey from the from Woman to Man. And I and it would seem like it would be titled that way. And I'm like, okay, that's a weird title. But it's my journey start and my love for what I wanted to do started. It was cultivated by women, but then it transitioned to now what I want to do is to engage individuals similar from like me, other males, yeah. and be able to provide yeah. them treatment and service. But it started with my love for her and it maintained with my love for her. And so it's that's kind of the journey to the profession is that wow. seeing it work, seeing the failure, seeing the plus, seeing the negative and going, yeah. I need to make a change. That's why I was driven to come back to my hometown and work because I wanted to give back to my particular community. And it was like, you're coming back to a small town after leaving and going to cities. You know, I, I was in Atlanta. I was at Georgia State University. And then I went to Orlando, <laughs> Florida. And so that was the ideal of coming back to a population that's not even half of the institutions I attended. <laughs> um, but I chose it because I wanted to be a positive influencer, a positive pebble in that ocean of mental health. Nah, I, I hear that, man. Shout out to you for, for having that, I don't want to say just that foresight, but that wisdom, man. And it's, it's interesting because you say your grandma. I had a similar story. It wasn't like 100% driven by her. I'm not going to give her all the credit, but <laughs> I, I will say a fair amount of the women in my life um, outside of like, kind of like what Isaiah talked about, like I started therapy young. I started with like, you know, bereavement and grief therapy because of my mom. But I forgot like what those people were. I just remember like, oh, people come to school and they talk to you because it started for me like in elementary school. And um, but I forgot what their job title was. I just remember that they would talk to me sometimes and take me in like give me like a ice cream or something. But it, it took a little while before I realized like that was a profession. But like you said, though, I always thought about the way a lot of the women were, um, particularly on my mom's side of the family, similarly driven by faith as well. But like the level of acceptance and, and empathy and compassion, I uh, was always driven by that because I they were kind of like my grounding, my grounding point, if you will, that gave me like a good foundation. And the reason why I mentioned them in relation to what you said, because I always think about, again, I'm always big on environment, Isaiah. I know you, this is our second time talking. I'm a big believer in your environment shaping your reality. And the reason why I bring up my mom's side of the family is because if I didn't have that side of my family, I don't think I'd be here. Not because my dad didn't keep me out of the street, because he did. But I had no coping skills whatsoever. I had no emotional, I would have had no emotional language to describe how I was feeling or ever feel comfortable to share it. But I got a lot of that from that side of that family. Because hmm. they always were like very pushy to a, to a degree, <laughs> very intrusive. 
about that. But I'm grateful because it, it helped me like be okay. As you talked about earlier with your mom, it made it easier for it to be okay to have those conversations. Because if it was like, you know, just what I was getting at home 99% of the time, I was like, I was very great at compartmentalizing and pushing everything down and being a good student. So nobody even took a second glance. Um, but obviously now being an adult, completely unhealthy. We would never advise, I'm sure I could speak for you on that, Travis. We would never advise a young person or an older person to behave in that sort of way if they want to have a healthy relationship with anybody. Um, so it's interesting, you know, like, again, like the, the environments that you grow up in and what you get exposed to, like, they, you know, they give you that initial outlook on life. And clearly for you, Travis, you know, it's like your, your grandma gave you that inspiration. And um, I think it's beautiful when you have that. And then you being able to relate to other men, perhaps, who grow up largely in female dominated households and don't have that relationship with their father. Notice like how that connected even to what Isaiah said, even though his father was there. But notice, like, I'm sure we can all agree to a certain to a certain amount. Moms are good at cultivating vulnerability because it's more of like a feminine type trait. Like it's, it's easy for them. I feel like we have to work harder at it. Not because we don't feel, not because we don't care. It's just, you know, you could say societal pressure, gender roles, what have you. It's just not as easy for a man to do that unless he grew up in a very, very maybe progressive environment that made that normal. Mm -hmm. So imagine like, that's like almost like you talking to somebody like him. And then you're also kind of speaking to me because even though I didn't grow up with the female dominated side, I still struggled at times to know how to navigate relationships with men because I didn't have a really good one with my own father. And that's supposed to be the first one, you know, that, that you get pretty good at. Um, so I think it's interesting the way, you know, that, that, that came to you. Isaiah, would you say in your upbringing, even though your father, you, you and your father didn't have the best relationship, did you have difficulty or did you, do you remember experiencing any significant challenge trying to like befriend guys growing up or, or talking about stuff with them? Uh, befriend, yes. Talking about stuff, no. So I never was really, definitely didn't like, was never the girl's friend or the one guy that was in the girl group. And I was just super good with girls because uh, I had a great relationship with my mom. It was like, nah, the male presence and the, the masculinity was in, the, in, in there. So I understood yeah. that energy and I could get on that frequency. Um, and I have two older brothers, no sisters. Okay. So my mom was the only source of, femininity and estrogen in the house. So gotcha. I knew through my brothers, let's say that it wasn't oddly enough, it was through my dad, but through my brothers, you know, mm. what I'm saying? I know how it is to meet the masculine outside of me and just, you know, we fight or we talk about cars, trucks, fire trucks, or middle school, we start <laughs> talking about girls. Like it, when it came natural, I guess I should, should be thankful of my brothers. Um, yeah. But now it wasn't weird. It was weird not getting it from my dad, we're supposed to go, like you said, that's initially the first relationship. But yeah, there's a lot of stuff I didn't, I didn't get the, I don't know how many people in the African, like in the lower income communities get the talk, but I definitely didn't get the birds and the bees talk. Like I didn't learn about women from my dad. So I didn't get much of, speaking transparently, I, I didn't get much sure, from man. him, <laughs> just to be Respect. honest. Respect to him, like you said, you you respect to your father because he did what he had to do. 
as mm. far as the old school protector and provider. Like right, they come right. from that generation, if we're being real. The 50s Correct. is all man goes, works in the factory to grinds his bones to death, comes home, the wife supposed to cook. Don't talk to me until it's time to eat. Don't talk to me unless this boy does something wrong. Right? Yep. And so that's all I saw. So I didn't, I did not get much from him from what I needed. No, I, I, I respect that. And I'm glad I'm, uh, it's good that you have, you have brothers. I only had an older sister, so I didn't have, <laughs> I didn't have anybody else to relate to. And I, and then I had a lot of women in my, on my family. So most of the men I knew were, are the guys I knew were younger than me. So if it wasn't like a homeboy, I was kind of out of luck. Um, but okay. yeah, that's good that you had that. Go ahead. Jeff. Do you mind? I just want to add to that. Can you say something interesting? Because mm -hmm. for me, I, my mother was what most would term the strong black woman raising a son. And so when we talk about feminine energy, my mama was very girly girl, but she was also a softball player. Mm. And so my mother would cut grass, wash her own car, go out there and do those, <laughs> you know, change the tire herself. She yeah. just got with her. My granddad raised, my granddad and my grandmother raised both genders to be able to do both. I need you mm. to be able to cook in the house and I need you to also be able to change your own oil. Like, yeah. You will not depend on a guy was my grandfather's uh, kind of motto for all his daughters. Mm. And so being raised by my mother, because sometimes people are like, well, you, you were raised on a lot of feminine energy. And I'm like, my mama was raising a black boy. And she gave me a lot of energy. A lot of our talks was, hey, don't cry. You're a boy. You're not going to do all that. You know, yeah. get it together, toughen up. And because I didn't have uh, that male presence around me, because I was her only child at the time. Um, and I didn't, she was trying to instill in me some of those values. Like, I'm, we're going to toughen up. Don't cry. Don't have all that. Don't be so sensitive. Like, the sensitivity, the femininity, the en that energy, mainly came from my grandmother. Even though my mother is 100% a girly girl, most of them I saw her, we were out there in the softball field, and she was playing with the females. And she was so good at softball that she would play in the uh, mixed league with the guys. And yeah. so, you know, and so I would see her, you know, during the day, work hard, grind, go outside, cut grass. And then, you know, sometimes later on, she'd be in a dress, heels, high heels. I'm like, wait, you know. And then, you know, she was that, she was known for both. She was known as the pretty girl in high school. <laughs> and she was known as also the athletic girl. So it's like, she's the pretty athletic girl. She's the mm -hmm. ideal prototype for those things. And so a lot of times when I think about that energy and people say, oh, you know, that mother, that nurturing, my mother was very nurturing. She was very warm welcoming and those things but sometimes she was very she was tough on me like we me and my mother we joke we we had conflict as a child and she's like i believe, I believe it stop I doing that we're not gonna we're not gonna complain about that you work hard and i was raised in low-income family so working hard was it like there, yeah. was, there was no crime get out there do what you need to do correct <laughs> make it happen. and that's what it is like complaining is for those who don't want to make it happen and Absolutely. so i didn't really get a lot of she nurtured me in the sense that she, I was her only boy, so she watched every last detail I did. I can make a move. I, I, it's, I'm surprised I wear polo shirts today. Because I, <laughs> I was forced to wear those polo shirts. You know, yeah. I have dreads now. It's like you're not gonna, you're not gonna wear these dreads. But then I acknowledged that she did that because she was young when she had. Both my parents had me very young. They had me in high school. So part of my healing scenario, with my father was, I cannot imagine at his age having a me, <laughs> like that. That that's real. He had to grow into who he was. Um, and now the balance is he had additional people around that could have supported that, but you're young. <laughs> Being they, 16, 18, these are the age, like 16, 8 year old taking care of a baby. You know, yeah, no, it's, it's going to be very experience. challenging. 
And so I, I look at my mom and think about her energy. And I'm like, ah, you know, my, my aunt was the same thing. She played softball. My I think my grandma was the only one that was really, really soft spoken, very yeah. gentle. And my mom was getting there and make it happen. Like she wasn't coming there. <laughs> I was just calm down. It was well, get up, do this, <laughs> get on yeah, it. Man. Now, listen, I, I respect that, man. And it's it's interesting. I, man, there's so many things I got to touch on. But I the first one that both of y'all were talking about, and I really got to say this, because this is going back to that parenting side, right? I'm very big as I've gotten older, particularly in, in my parenting role, and trying to understand the dynamics of these relationships that we play. What's traditionally mom's role? What's traditionally dad's role? How does that function in the Black community when we're usually operating with only one person pr predominantly there? Now, interestingly enough, Isaiah is the only one that had both his parents in the household majority of the time. I did, but it was a very short amount of time. Travis didn't at all, right? Mm -hmm. That's okay. correct. Okay. So what's interesting about these dynamics? So we're talking about energy now. One thing I've learned, and I don't know if you all agree, but I'm just, of course, this is a platform where we're going to speak openly. For me, my experience has been that I feel like in most cases, there's things that we know men tend to have a pretty typical disposition towards and ones that women tend to tend to do women tend to be more of the nurturers more of compassion more of empathy that doesn't mean when you know we're not typecasting and saying every woman's like that we're not saying they're not able to embrace other attributes we're saying typically they tend to choose to embrace those type of attributes it's just part of being a biological woman and for men we tend to be more of the providers the disciplinarians help provide structure and order, right? That's, that just tends to be what we do. It doesn't mean every single man's like that. Of course, we're allowed to be sensitive and emotional and so on and so forth. But I bring that up because going back to the point about when it's parents in the household. So if I'm missing one of that, what happens? So in, um, let's, let's, I'm going to compare, I'll bring you in Isaiah in a minute. I'm going to compare me and Travis. And I'm going to say for the most part, again, it was just mainly my dad. So I know my life is being dominated by a man being in the house. Travis, you would say you being dominated by a woman in the house. Mm -hmm. So what were some of the differences between us so far? You said that your mom was, was trying to navigate doing both. She's, again, I would believe she's going to tend to lean more towards being um, emotionally available, vulnerable, compassionate. But she knows that she's going to have to also pick up the slack because dad, bio dad wasn't there in that way to be strict at times, stern, trying to provide that order and discipline that a man would typically do, that the father would typically do, mm -hmm. right? And then on my side, I got all of that and none of the compassion and the empathy and the warmth and the vulnerability. So I got an abundance of the, the, the stuff that men, we do really good, but none mm -hmm. of the stuff that the mom usually would give you, right? So that either way, the point is it's imbalanced. Yeah. Why am I even making this point? Because to, this goes back to Isaiah. Because to me, you have to have both parents in every child's life, point blank, period. Because I talk about co-parenting a lot. I co-parent. And sometimes I'm working with a client, I'm working with a family, I'm working with a couple, and they're like, oh, I just cannot deal with his father. I cannot talk to his mother. And I'm like, listen, man, listen, man. You don't get to say that. Because when that child has to grow up, when you don't work with them and you remove that person from their life, you have no idea what hardship you're creating for them. You don't even realize it yet because it's not going to manifest yet. But I'm telling you, 
based on my lived experience, Travis, even what you just said, Isaiah, even what you just said, and all the clients that I've worked with that I've had to have these conversations with. Like, you need to understand, we have roles for a reason. There's a reason why it takes both of us to make this person, because we have different dispositions that each child is going to need to be balanced. That, to me, in my humble opinion, is really the only main difference between us and, let's say, our white counterparts, is we're coming up with 50% of the stability in the household and wondering why it's harder for us to compete with them. Because a lot of them come from stable households, traditional households, and we don't. I don't know if y'all want to add anything to that, but that's like a platform issue for me. I think for jump in real quick. I think when I think about it from my perspective a little bit, I agree that lack of stability, that lack of um, access to certain things causes that imbalance to kind of play out in certain people's lives. But then I even think about a little bit, my mom was very particular about who she dated. She wouldn't allow anybody to come into that environment and disrupt kind of the path that she had set forth for us as a unit. And and I think I'm not going to tell my mom's full story out here because I want to put a business on these streets. Um, no, 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 perfectly fine. We respect privacy. Yeah, I want to respect privacy. I don't want to watch this. I'm like, oh, so you talk my story. You talk about your story, not my story. But I honor that because what she taught me in doing that is boundaries. Yeah. I learned boundaries. I learned the power of saying you don't, you can't be in my, you shouldn't be in my life, or you shouldn't. I won't allow you in my life if you bring something negativity to it. And so I counsel many individuals, and similar to your scenario, Isaiah, where the mom is trying to navigate. You know, I'm with. I'm not saying your mom was, but other people's moms were trying to navigate. Should I stay with the guy so they they're in that same environment? And then we have to have that conversation of, is it healthier for them not be present? And to be present and have this certain level of scarring that they got to work through, or is it healthy to keep them there just so they can be present and body only? Because what you what I want to learn is boundaries. You can't come into this environment and disrupt my life, and it's not fair to me if you disrupt my life just for you being present in my atmosphere, being present in my lived environment. And that's one thing I I honor my mama for and her being very choosy about relationships because yeah. she to a degree taught me boundaries. Just because somebody wants to come into their life, their presence, their physical being there is not always significant because that can cause more damage in the long run. And so now yeah. I have to see you and experience you and you're disrupting certain things that are happening in my my life in a negative way and causing me more problems later on. And so I think about that when you were mentioning that, RJ, just that idea of you know the energies and the shift and the imbalance. But then I'm, sometimes when I think about the, the other side of it, it's like, mm -hmm. the absence can be more beneficial. So yeah, I didn't get some sure. of the tools and the tricks that I needed, but it's more or less access. That's why, you know, I, I don't give full credit to those individuals that I don't, I didn't know everything to do. I'm like, well, you know, we may didn't, you know, that's things I'm still learning as a man now. Same. At the age I am right now. And so it's life is a journey. And, but I'm learning the power of reaching out and accessing that and going where I'm deficit at, I need to acknowledge it. And I need to reach out to other people across the aisle and go, hey, I need to learn this. You know, I need, I need to pick this trade up. But I also learned that I know the significance of I don't need you present if you're going to disrupt my life in a way that's not going to propel me forward or move me forward in a healthy way. Absolutely. Your presence isn't good enough for me. Absolutely. I want to go to you real quick, Isaiah. I just want to make one other, other point to that, too. I'm always a big believer because I work with a lot of different people, especially in co-parenting situations. As you said, I'm thinking about like the net net of it. What's the net effect? 
if you're there physically, but you're creating a lot more instability and dysfunction, no, nah, you probably shouldn't be there because we are also learning, of course, when we're children, we're observing the family environment. So the way that they model their behavior, whether they're telling us to do it or not, we're learning. And if I'm learning, like, for example, not saying none about none of y'all went through this, but just for the sake of an example, it's an abusive environment. I'm seeing my mom slap my dad every day or my mom, my dad punch my mom in the face every day. You better believe you're learning that that's okay. Whether you agree that it's okay or not, that's not the point. The point is that you learned that it was okay because you saw it for an extended period of time. So it becomes part of your, your, your normal perception, right? If that kind of behavior is going on, or it's just, you know, highly, um, highly hostile, where we don't even communicate well, there's a lot of screaming, a lot of arguing, and then the children might get neglected, things like that. I agree. I don't advise people to stay in the same home just for the sake of children. That's like the, the argument to stay married because of children. I don't necessarily agree with that. But what I do say, because I talk about more from the co-parenting perspective, do not give me a reason why you cannot find a way to work with this person. If you need to be out of the house, fine. But don't use that as an excuse and say, well, I don't need to be present because she gives me a hard time all the time. Or he doesn't want to listen to me. I'm like, respectfully, that doesn't matter anymore. When you made that child, they are the priority. So don't tell me what you're not going to do or you're unwilling to do. That is highly, highly selfish in the worst ways. Yes. And I don't support that. So I just wanted to like add that piece on there. We don't, we don't want people to stay in unhealthy living environments. But we got to learn to put the, the personal relationship to the side when you're talking about children. Yeah. Isaiah, did you want to add anything to that, brother? Um, just a light bulb went off in my head with what you said with that. But um, yeah, that I, I think about the dynamic that might have that was happening between them and how it affected my mom per se, because to call back way before, like my mom typically had to do the same thing Travis's mom had to do because even though he was there, he wasn't like I said, really a stand-up father and husband. So he didn't really take care of business. So mm-hmm. imagine Imagine that the psychological play that happens where a woman who's brought up in a certain time with a protector and provider looks mm-hmm. at a man as you're supposed to do this. He's not doing it, but he's in the home. So yeah. naturally think about it. Women have now been, it's been normalized that if you're not here, oh, all I have to do is get you either on child support and that's fine. All I need is the money. But right, right. find the money and you're here, but I still have to do the man's job. Mind you, my per- my personal thing is I believe in a helpmate, actual, e- some type of equality. We could be separate but equal. But in the 50s where my mom grew up, that's, that's not, it's no separate equal. You take your bacon, <laughs> right. you come home, I take right. care of home, I take care of these kids. And Correct. that's about it. And he, But he wasn't even doing most of the business, like taxes, um, the mortgage, take care of the insurance. Like she had to double up and do the woman's part um, and stay in her femininity, but yeah. she also had to do some of the masculine things. I air quote it because I don't technically believe it all the, those things all the way. Yeah. But I'm speaking from her perspective, Gen X, boomer perspective. Yeah. Um, think of the psychological play that it has on and how that rips on the marriage. But like you said, they're sticking together because nothing against, I'm still a faithful, I'm Christian, but the Christianity faith is you just pray to God, you better stay with that man. You married him. Now you hear now, you stay out for the kids. It's like, no, nah, you can still be a person of faith and get divorced. I mean, 
biblically speaking, is it wrong? Yeah, but I mean, I'm pretty sure this God's supposed to give us grace. He's the ultimate pinnacle, the the foundation, the source of grace. So if you can extend it for other things, he can extend it for that. Like you said, think of the future of your kids and how it's inadvertently um, working against them, and it doesn't manifest until it's too late. So now I've I've manifested seeing dysfunction in the, in the fact of. I had, I grew up codependency issue. So I had a Superman complex when I was married. I was married and now I'm divorced. Mm. That left a huge strain on my relationship because I felt like I grew up thinking, I don't want to be this person that I saw just working and then sitting in his butt, overstressed on my mom. And so the stress that I'm on my mom that my, that she got, it extended on to us. Yeah. But she still kind of in a way twisted, turned her three sons into her husband. So she kind of meshed me and my brothers together, created a husband that she wanted. But that caused right. strain on me. And I just extended that into my marriage. And that kind of fell where it may. I don't want to speak about that story. I spoke about it too much. That's okay. But, um, I understand. <laughs> nah, man, that's 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 powerful, man. And yeah. I do you want to say anything before? I don't want to, I don't want to jump in between if you, you want to add. Uh, I'm just I'm just honoring what he just shared because I, I know in this conversation for me, it's big to be able to honor kind of the authenticity. Because I know for me, I'm speaking as a therapist, but I'm speaking more or less as Travis Crafter, <laughs> the human being. Yeah. Not, you know, some of this is not theory based. <laughs> no, no, this is all, this is all practical and happened. So yeah. no, I, I'm always appreciative for anybody who, who owns those types of challenges that they might have experienced. And I think sometimes we fixate too much on what didn't work and, and what failed and, and how we do it differently. I'm very much a believer in the culmination of all these experiences, of course, is what gets us to today. So sometimes, you know, there's the things that you got to go through. And I would say to you, Isaiah, because it's the same thing I've had to give myself grace on is, you know, you don't when you don't know what to do, like we talked earlier, you don't have those examples. You can't really to me, you can't fault yourself. But once we know better, I'm hoping we're doing better. Once I've had the epiphany, like, you know, I wasn't, I, I overdid it. I was taking on too much and overburdening myself and not letting my partner even help me. Or uh, some things I've had to struggle with dealing with being more open, learning to be more expressive and vulnerable because I didn't grow up in that type of environment. It was keep everything inside. And it took me a really long time. And I still have challenges at times with regularly doing that, but I, I try. I'm very conscious and actively doing that. But you gotta fail a lot of times to learn those lessons. Those to me are the ones usually that stick the best. Those emotional pains, those are the ones you can like, you can recall at an instant. You're like, oh man, I remember exactly where I was at, how I was feeling. I remember like it was yesterday. And I think sometimes you need those experiences as hurtful, hurtful and as harmful as they may be at times to hopefully learn and grow from them so that we don't continue to repeat those mistakes in the future. I don't know if you two would agree, but that's just sort of been my way of conceptualizing that as I've gotten older. 100 percent agree yeah i'm, I'm there because I, I definitely believe in i'm a, I'm a confrontation dude and so a lot of times when people say i need to avoid confrontation i'm like nah confrontation is a growing period you know anything that grows has to go through some type of level of resistance yes so that resistance will either build you shape you or bend you towards a certain direction and so i, I do acknowledge the benefit of pain as well as joy I'm an all-around emotion person. It's mm-hmm. funny because I'm like, I, I love emotion. That's one thing when people see me, I'm like, the first thing I tell them, I hate to tell you, you're sitting in the back, 
you're sitting in front of a guy that loves emotions. I embrace them. I mean, right. all of them from the pain to the happiness, to the joy, to the discontent, to the other ones, full range. So mm -hmm. I, I acknowledge the impact and significance of emotions and all of them, not just some of them, not just the good. Now that's, that's, that's beautiful hearing you say that too. Cause I think it, you know, there's, it's natural to only lean into the positive stuff and of course want to gloss over and drive very quickly by the negative stuff. But I've learned, uh, even in my own experience, and I'm going to touch on this in a, in a little while, um, you know, grief and loss and, and just general hardship that a lot of people I'm sure are experiencing right now to not shy away from them and really allow yourself to sit in them. Cause that's where a lot of gro real growth and learning is going to happen. But if we are too afraid or too preoccupied, you know, there's a lot of good learning that we'll miss. Cause you're just like, I just want to, I just want to get to feeling better again. Can you help me do that? Nah, man, Th to get you to where you want to be, we, we got to sit in that for a little while and, it, and it's okay. It, it's what helps the highs feel high mm -hmm. and we have to experience those lows at times. So definitely, definitely a good conversation. Um, I'm going to pivot back to you, Travis. So I want to hear a little bit of more, obviously I've known you for a little while, but I want to hear more since we haven't been able to see each other in a while, you being in Georgia, me being in Florida, what has your experience been like, let's say over the past few years, you being a black male therapist in your field, in your rural community, what has that experience been like for you? It's been an interesting journey. I'm, I'm not gonna lie to all. I, I told you I'm just coming as Travis, not the licensed professional counselor that I am. Um, but it's been a very interesting journey, and I say that because if you look at my career, um, you see, you get a feeling of how interesting it is. When I came, I left Florida, went to school in Florida, came back to Georgia because, like I said, I wanted to work back in the community that I was born in, born and raised in. Um, but my career didn't initially start here. I, I sought out a position here, but wasn't available or wasn't afforded the opportunity originally. So I worked first um, for an agency that I will not mention her name. They would never be mentioned okay. in my presence. Um, <laughs> just give it a day. We don't, we don't have to give them any shine. It's okay. <laughs> no shine for me. Uh, and then I kind of followed up working for another agency in Macon that gave me my ability to work in the correctional facility. So I worked in a, worked in a jail. Didn't really think I would love it, but <laughs> being honest, it's one of the most exciting times as a counselor that I had. And it's like, oh, well, why would be working in the jail or working would be an exciting time for me? But it's because there was a level of authenticity that you can reach when somebody mm -hmm. already has the perception of, well, you're already prejudging me. So I might as well just be honest with you. I'm like, oh, I'm not really judging you at all. I just, let's just share each other. Let's share stories and let's understand how to guide you to whatever direction we're guiding you towards. Or share, mm -hmm. let us share your experience and guide you to a direction. And so there's a level of honesty that there that was to me impactful in the first part of my career. Because I'm all about congruency. I'm all about the authentic person. I'm right. all about meeting you exactly where you are and kind of help guiding you to wherever we're going. Not that I'm guiding you to that destination, but I'm bringing light to those areas that you want to be like to be brought to, and then helping shape you towards that destination or move you towards that destination. And so that was interesting, but majority, when we think about prison, a pipeline system, that was African-American males that I was mainly providing services mm -hmm. to and females because of how the prison system is. Um, and so I moved from that then to moving towards working for the rural town that I worked for, which is predominantly at the time made up of um, non-minorities. And so working in that population and community, community mental health, I mainly service um, Caucasian males and females with very limited experience with working with African-American uh, males or females. Mm. Um, there was a higher chance of me working with African-American female 
then I'm a male for sure, but very slim. It wasn't until I started doing um, outreach, doing um, stuff in the community where they were like, oh, we, we have a male counselor, he's African-American, he has dreads, he's a little bit younger. Uh, wait a minute, what's going on here? You know, just start yeah. talking about mental health. He's going out talking about mental health, making it a normal in a conversation that I started to see an influx in African-Americans as a whole and males. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my career, even though it started um, mainly servicing population outside of the cultural group that I um, am a part of, it was an interesting journey because being in a rural town, you're fighting resources. We have yeah. absence of resources in, in this rural community. Um, we're fighting cultural dynamics here still. Um, you know, and so they're sitting, sitting across from me saying, well, can you understand my experience? And I'm like, well, you know, I can. I'm a therapist. I'm trained to understand your experience. Even though we don't come from the same cultural background, I have a yeah, particular yeah. set of skills that allow me to process out your experience and help work through your experience. And then it transfers over to me kind of moving from that experience to not working at a, um, a college. And so that experience is uniquely different because I'm coming into a college mm-hmm. setting where now people are seeing me, a black male with dreads, and they're going, now I'm seeing an influx of males that I'm working with. And they're going, I'm seeking out treatment, which was way different than in the rural setting. And mm-hmm. navigating that as a professional is difficult because the way people receive you it's difficult. I had to explain my education a lot more when I was in community mental health setting. I had to go, these are my degrees, this is my background, which is not true to my personality. I'm not one of those guys that want to go, well, this is my background, this is my degree. Let me uh-huh. use the counseling jargon. Let me sound like a professional. I'd rather have an authentic, real conversation with you yeah. at whatever level we need to have. And then I find myself in the college setting now because I'm working with more African males. It's this automatic appreciation, and I have to bring them back and say, I don't know you. Yes, we have had some shared experiences because we're African-American males, but I don't mm-hmm. know you. And I don't know how you reason through your shared experience. So I want to pull back and get to know you as an individual. And I'm right. going to navigate that a little bit more. And so it's been an interesting journey because there's been moments where I've been received. There's been moments where in our field, there's few African-American males. So working amongst coworkers, I'm the only guy and I'm the only black guy in the room. And so having to navigate, you know, we're going to social settings. I'm not getting invited. Um, you know, the after work events with other professionals where I can share about my experiences, I'm not always getting invited to those events. And so now I'm isolated while working in my field. And so mm-hmm. having to manage that as a professional and sometimes and I, having to manage being back in my hometown, which I love, but it's different from what I've been doing. I'm used to going out to parks and running and doing half marathons and walking through those parks and getting access to Stone Mountain and going up and down the mountain and we have one park here (laughs) and it's a part where you see the road and it's not one of those parts where you get lost in the woods so (laughs) finding ways to take care of myself was more challenging here so i'm being isolated by the community i'm being isolated because i don't have the self-care tools that i have and then Mm. let's be honest coming back here i had that you read in wdb the boys book souls of black folks are coming back back and people perceiving you as this educated negro that's coming back into this community and wanting to change it and be different and kind of usher into a new age i'm like i'm not trying to change the culture of thompson i want to expose the culture of thompson and so i've had some resistance there when i was in my hometown of well, he's coming in and different i'm like really i'm the same guy that i was when i was younger just a yeah. little bit more confident and a little bit more vocal <laughs> so i had a lot of these things younger it's just i'm now vocalizing i have a little bit more courage a little bit more strength to say it and to be assertive about it and then moving to the college setting 
now being in a diverse environment, and that's changed the landscape of how I experience being me and being a therapist. And so it's weird because as a therapist, you're going on a journey while you're taking people through a journey. Ooh. You have to outside things that are happening around you while you're helping the other people navigate it. Now that's that's oh man, I can't even hit everything you just said because you just you hit so much inside of me, man. Um, that last line. I, you're taking you're taking other people on a journey where you're on your own journey. Ah, oh, truer words never spoken. I, I think about um, to your point, like even listening to your journey, right, and what you just described. <laughs> you went from like seems like lack of acceptance, really, in the communities that you were trying to serve, and maybe let's say maybe a little more homogeneous. Would you say? Yeah. Like you said less less black folks there. To getting in a college setting and seeing a lot more diversity. Um, I always ask that question because I, I've had to think about that a lot myself. And Travis, I think I talked to you a little about, about this offline, but Isaiah, you definitely haven't heard this. So I wanna make sure I, I share that. For me, it's, it's been very interesting in, in thinking about that question because number one, as Travis just said, there's not a lot of us. Like, I don't even wanna imagine the percentage. I wanna imagine it's, it's probably under 1%, somewhere around there in terms of total population. And just to be clear, I'm gonna say this, this camera too. This is nothing against our white brothers and sisters out there or anybody else that does this work. But representation does matter. Like we just have to say that. So if we're this tiny, tiny percentage of that group and we know that our community historically doesn't reach out for services, you know, in my mind, I didn't really feel like I was going to exclusively working with our community or I was going to spend a lot of attention in our community because I just thought maybe they're not going to really care as much. So I'm probably going to end up doing the work that a lot of our colleagues might do. And I'm kind of pivoting to my next question, but I just got to say it because you brought up so much. Um, everything for me changed summer 2020 with George Floyd. That's when my eyes opened because I saw so many brothers and sisters who started reaching out directly and saying a lot of things about, I need to see somebody who, no, you don't know me. No, we're not a monolith but you can understand a little bit about my lived experience because we might have that in common. And mm -hmm. there's a little bit less I have to explain, which makes me feel a little more comfortable to want to engage with somebody like you. Mm -hmm. And that was extremely, talking about going on the journey, extremely empowering to me because I never thought I was going to be, in that sense, I felt a bit uplifted, extremely validated that, oh no, we, we want you. So I was like, okay, mm -hmm. so I need to pay more attention. And that's what really helped me start to really, even to get to this point to talking to you brothers tonight, that's what helped me get there. But it wasn't, it wasn't always like that because I didn't see that influx of people and we're all taking it seriously. And you know, people are specifically starting to look for you and appreciating you and your unique outlook and the fact that you came from that community. So there's something you want to offer. And so that's a huge reason why I asked those questions because I, I hope that more people as whomever may watch or listen if they're interested, would seriously consider doing it because there is nowhere near enough of us and um, there's a lot of work to be done. So I really appreciate you, Travis, for sharing that. And I think I hope that, you know, other people who, again, are interested might consider doing this type of work because it's, it's very necessary. Um, to you, Isaiah, though, I know we talked a little bit offline and, and number one, confidentiality is important. So do not feel any pressure at all. But I know we talked a little bit offline about you having had some of your own experience in therapy before. And I was wondering if there was anything that you would share 
or feel comfortable sharing about how that experience was for you or any insight or growth you you've taken from your time in therapy, you know, whether it was recently or, or years past? Yeah, I mean, therapy has not shaping it's re I believe it has reshaped me. I think it's remolded me. I think it's the brain itself is malleable. It can be, but people can get set in their ways. But I think the freedom of, and I'll take it back to my mother. I don't know whether she was progressive herself or she was just so distraught in her situation of not getting help mm-hmm. or support. She was just like, I got to do something. And I think somebody around her was like, you've been to therapy. But I remember as a kid coming in and doing the whole coming in the room, sitting on the couch. Some I, I think I've heard white people before call it say, the couch. I can just remember. <laughs> I can just remember that idea, and I was like, I was that kid. I remember a lot of '90s movies where it's that kid, and you're playing puzzles, and it's kind of like I forget some other therapists talked about it, but you do the therapy work through keeping the kid kind of distracted and just talking to them. I was like, that was me. I don't, and I don't know inadvertently that led, like I said, led me to therapy. But mm-hmm. um, once I did get there. Uh, it re- kind of reshaped me. It re- I rethink a lot of things. It's, it's affected. I don't want to. Let me say it. it is 100% positive. Let me say that 100% okay. positive. I would, if I had to do life over again, I would have went to therapy sooner, way much sooner. Trust and believe me. Um, it's made, and I choose decisions. Uh, I make decisions better. I choose my the people around me better, so to speak. It's everything has to comes from a standpoint and a lens of. I guess I'm gonna just say mental health, right? Mm-hmm. Is this poisonous or not? Is this person self-aware? Is this person a harm to themselves and inadvertently a harm to me? And do they not know it? And do I know my boundaries? That's something I learned in mm-hmm. therapy for sure. I read the book Boundaries. I I suggest I'm not a professional, but I suggest the book to anyone. Um, yeah, but I learned those boundaries and learned that through therapy. So I try my best. I was one of the people like. I think it was a year in, I wasn't one of the, my therapist babies. Well, my therapist said this, my therapist said that. I think that's a growing pain. Hopefully nobody watching knows like, you might be that person, you might not, but that's a growing pain, all right? It's kind of like sure. going to school for psychology, delusions of grandeur. I, I kind of look at it like that. It's like, you're going to have this new, the lens The lens you look through had been cloudy and mm-hmm. someone just take alcohol, took alcohol wipes and now you can see. And now you're like, oh, wait. Y'all probably shouldn't be doing that. Or no, you probably shouldn't think that way. Uh, I had to go through that. And that was a social kind of, I felt myself coming becoming a social pariah because people who don't understand the, the language, the verbiage of mental health, it mm-hmm. sounds like Japanese to them, but it sounds like you're preaching. And that has to do something with the black community. It's like, we, I think we go to church so much and hear someone like preaching. You probably don't want to hear it nowhere else. Mm-hmm. It's like you gotta have a conversation more than you preaching, and so Correct. I'm I'm learning that through going through therapy too, and my own works, and whether or not I'm I'm on a show or I'm out at a mixer with a co-ed mixer or not. It's like put the medicine in the candy. I'm learning that through therapy, right? I'm learning so much about myself. I'm learning so much about not other people, but how to interact with other people and how to. I'm learning from my, my coping mechanisms. Uh, I'm, I'm more hopeful, so to speak. That's why I get from therapy. The, the fact that I know how to create a atmosphere or create a thought process and manifest something positive 
and know how to actively work in the moment. That's the thing I think people don't get from therapy. Like, I know how to handle stuff in the moment. I've learned how to be a master of my emotions and how to actively think and respond, not react to a disheartening, traumatic, or very triggering situation. That's like the fifth. Hopefully, I spoke on points, but that's like the fifth positive point. Mm-hmm. I mean, this yes. is the effects that I say have. These are the positive effects that I've gotten from going through therapy for myself. So hopefully, I lived the life, and I'm trying not to stand on my soapbox, but live the life and mm-hmm. show people this is what a positive take on therapy and doing the work looks like. I want to say that. I mean, I've had to figure that out. Like doing a second show, it's like. I can't just tell people to be going to therapy. I learned I stopped doing that. I don't say, I don't have a conversation with someone listening and say, you ever thought about going to therapy? No one receives that well. <laughs> but I, I, I've i I've learned how to just be the example. And then people see that and say, something's different. He's talking there to you. Go. What does that word mean? What does he mean when he say that? Or why does he do that? And of course, I'm on our diaspora. People say, that, that's white people stuff. It's like, no, <laughs> that's positive healthy positive manifestation stuff that's clear mind clear lens that's healing that's positive response not reacting and these are some of the things that you could have you could have a life to where you could positively positively think of something and have a positive outcome as long as you do the work beautiful man yes he said it all yeah man yeah man (laughs) I, I would drop my mic if, if I didn't uh, need it to talk right now. But man, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful words, man. Um, just, you know, getting that feedback, number one, going back to the purpose of the platform, man, I want us to hear this stuff and I want it to sound like it's not only normal, but that it's okay. And that you can get favorable outcomes like you just said. And I'm a big believer on the last point you just mentioned, man. I, I, I always tell people this and I'll just, I'll say it just to make sure everybody's heard it. Um, I like it, honestly, to me, when people come to me, when they're really tired of whatever the issues are that they've been dealing with. I love that because that means that you're ready to do something to your point. Uh, You're ready to do some work. I don't want you like contemplating, pre-contemplation. I don't want you there. Not because you don't deserve to work with somebody, but because it's harder because it might seem like you might need some convincing. But when you're tired and you've been dealing with it, you've been banging your head against this wall emotionally for so long, you're like, amen tell me what we need to do. I'm ready to get started. And to me, when I listened and I just received everything you just said to me, some part of me sees that you must've had that type of approach. Cause I just listened to you share all of that. Very well spoken, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. I think I hopefully for the sake of someone else's spirit and their mind, I hope they don't I hope not to say I hope they don't. <sighs> I would, I did come to that moment. It came to our marriage. It came to, I've been working with this young woman trying to make something work. And I thought I was being malleable. I thought I was being progressive. I thought I was being the better man I sought to be. And I just kept, I just couldn't get it. I just thought, I really thought it was me. And that's why I started going to therapy on my own. So I got figure it out. Like, is it really me? And my therapist just woke one day and said, nah, this is just the person who this person is. They're raised this way, different from you, and they just don't see it. Um, mm. Sorry, something, but they, they just don't see it. Um, something made me lose track of thinking. Something happened in my house. Sorry. 
But no, but, it's, it's okay. Yeah. I, I, I would add to that really quick because I think that that's important when you're talking about relationships. Because I, hundred percent, you know, to me they're so difficult because, of course, we have different upbringings and different outlooks, whether we come from the same cultural background or not. They're inherently going to be difficult. But I always talk about willingness and willfulness. So the same way you took it upon yourself, which again, salute to you for doing that, going to go get some individual therapy after couples counseling, and maybe you you felt some type of way that it wasn't you weren't getting the outcome that you wanted, because we don't always do that. Yeah. But to your point, though, and Travis, I hope you would agree with me here. It don't matter how bad you want it. It don't matter how much you want them to change. They change when they're ready to. And you can't put that in them. Yeah, Travis, would, you, would you disagree? Hundred percent agree. I always one thing I talk about in therapy is locus of control, and I always go, "What is our locus of control?" There are things within your control, and there are things outside of your control. What we like to play with, or the playground we like to play in, a lot of times, are those things outside of our control. So all you can do is work within the context, or work within the confines of what you can control. You have to begin to accept those things in order to allow those other things to move away or kind of acknowledge them for what they are. Sometimes people are not bad people. Sometimes it's just outside of your control because of their behavioral structure, their belief system, their value system. You just have to acknowledge for what it is and go, well, this is my belief system. This is how this is. And so I I agree 100% with you. No, that's that's beautiful, man. I um, And I like the way you, you, you kind of broke that down too for anybody who might have not been familiar with the jargon. Um, but I, I really believe in that. I talk a lot about radical acceptance too. And to me, those are the hardest things. What you're describing, that's the hardest stuff to do, man. So you're telling me this thing that I really care about, this person that I really care about, whether they're romantic, whoever. I can't do nothing, man. Are you sure? Like maybe that maybe I maybe I didn't tell them I didn't I know I said it like five times. Maybe I need to say it like 15 more times. Are you sure they really understand it, sir? it's not within your ability to manipulate that person into seeing things from your perspective or to recognize something that they can't see. Mm -hmm. It's always easier when you're on the outside to see somebody else's stuff. The hard part is pulling the mirror up and being like, hey, did you notice that you do this a lot? Listen. And then not, not only seeing it, but then accepting that that might be true, right? Mm -hmm. I, say, I say that one a lot. I'm gonna say this one last point and then I'm gonna let you jump in. This is a platform thing, so forgive me. I have to say this. I always say we have to always budget room in any conversation dealing with any person that we could be wrong. And the reason why I say that is because if you're willing to do that, you're willing to hear outside perspective, and it's easier to come to resolution because you're not stuck in seeing everything your own way. And I really, really hope because of what both of you just said, that that sinks into somebody's mind. But Isaiah, go ahead. Nah, I had the, that realization. So that is when it, that I, can't, I talk about, I'm trying not to talk about it, but it's much of my story and it's where my therapy journey starts. So I keep, I don't reference this time, this young lady in my marriage, just cause I'm like, maybe I am, maybe I am bitter. Maybe I am, that's the one thing. I had, I've already had the mirror up, so I'm fine. Am I bitter, am I jaded? Maybe I've been in therapy two years post that, so I don't think so. But anyway, um, the realization of thinking that this person really doesn't get it and the thought of not just the loved one, but romantically is different because you have physical relations and you're sitting here thinking like, we doing all this. We done did this. We done did that. We done did what we wasn't supposed to do. If you're, <laughs> religious, if you're religious, we done did this and that that many times before you got married. So you sit here telling me, 
we yeah. haven't made a bond so great that you couldn't, you couldn't for not just me, us, both of us, the union, this new being that we created when we got married for Damn. that and us separately, you can't just break down on yourself and say, what am I doing? That's, that's all I could, that's all I ever could want. But like you said, I couldn't astral project my own self into her <laughs> and make her see through my eyes and see like, you're not always, it's okay. Like, it's really okay for you to be wrong. It's really okay. And I'm not going to beat on you, but it's really okay for you to sit in that room with this person and be like, okay, what's wrong with me? And But it just nature that I think of nature versus nurture, right? She grew up somewhere in her own dynamic around her own people where it was just normalized. That's it. I, what, what am I going to do about it? Well, how, how, who am I to come and tell a person that's been something that's working their entire life to tell them they're wrong? That's like you going to Superman's world and saying, hey, man, why are you guys all flying around here? You're, you're supposed to be walking. Oh, look at you. Like, what are you talking mm-hmm. about, my guy? No, that's, hey, hey that's, that's, that's so real what you said, man. And, and it's, it's true. You can't, you can't put those thoughts in their mind. Now, as a therapist, if I was going to take that from a therapy side, I would, of course, challenge and say, like, are you sure it's working? Right. Because you guys had a relationship. Right. So I could I could I could have a little wiggle room to push it back and say, are you sure what your husband say? Because ah. if he's not satisfied, then it's not working because a relationship takes two. He got to also agree. It's not just from your perspective. That's a dictatorship. Mm-hmm. We don't support that. Um, but but as you're saying, your point, though, sometimes it takes people. And I man, do I know this from personal experience, too? Sometimes you got to go through significant challenge and hardship to wake up. And I personally think for a lot of men, I will say this, not because there's something wrong with us, not because we're broken or anything like that. It's just because we're so fundamentally behind a lot of our female counterparts because society, in my opinion, doesn't make it comfortable or promote or encourage us to be in touch with our feelings. Hmm. It's so much harder for us too. So we make what I would call for myself, a lot of rookie mistakes that a woman might not make. Because we're not, we don't get, uh, we don't seek counsel or guidance from other men who've been through stuff, and they can put you on game and say, "Hey, don't do that. That's gonna make you lose your marriage. That's gonna make you lose your lady, or what have you." So we make those mistakes. We stumble, we fall, we cry, we get upset, we get hurt. Hopefully, go to therapy, wake up, make the connections. Like, oh, let me not do that again. And hopefully, we have better relationships and better outcomes. But I think for a lot of men, that happens to us. Not again, not because there's something wrong with us. But because there's such a lack of awareness and we're so unlikely to engage in these conversations that naturally we're going to make those common pitfall mistakes. Yeah, I, I have to jump in on this with you, with you Isaiah. Please, please. You started speaking to my soul a little bit because for me, I love the realness, authenticity that comes along with when the person say, you know, maybe I'm here, maybe I'm not here. I don't know. Let me just explore it. Because I am a speak therapy mumble jumble just five seconds again. Um, I I like to talk about the Jahari window every time with people because the Jahari window is simple, but for me, it's complex because if you look at the, I'm not going to the whole theory behind it, I'm not going to go the whole explanation behind it, but just basic stuff. There's a part of ourselves that we see that other people see that we see together. Mm. There's a part of ourselves that we see that other people don't see. There's a part of ourselves that other people see that we don't see at all. And that's a part of ourselves that's completely unknown to everybody. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we don't like to acknowledge that there's a part of ourselves that is completely unknown to us because we're still growing and still developing. Correct. There's a part of ourselves that others may recognize that we're 100% committed 
to the fact that, oh, well, that's not me, when in actuality, other people are calling it out and bringing it forth. And sometimes it, it's hard to sit with yourself and kind of go, I, I want to say, based off the length of time that I'm in this certain, certain thought process, I'm in a certain space, you know, as a therapist, I've had to gut check myself sometimes. I'm like, you know, I've been in a therapy for a period of time. I should be more evolved or progressive, <laughs> as you say, in certain areas. I'm like, Travis, you've been talking to people oh, about this man. for years or for a period of time. And oh, you're good at talking the language. You're good at having the process. But you haven't involved in this area yourself. And so you have to sit down with yourself and say, that's part of me that I don't know and respect. I love the part of your heart when it was someone that's unknown to me and unknown to others because I'm on a journey. And we don't right. respect that journey. The reason I love the theory that I love that deals with self-actualization is life is about finding yourself and living yourself in the moment. I love how you spoke about being in the moment because I am in every moment trying to find and be myself in every single moment of the day, every second, every period. And as part of myself that may change in the next second because there's part of me I don't know. There's part of me that other people see that they may um, address or say to me. And that's part that I may see that they may not see and say, I know this is me. <laughs> I, I know this is me. You may not recognize it in me, but I know it's me. You may not have an understanding of what it means to be this. And so that that authenticity, that realness, that this, that true, that congruency of just saying, you know, hey, I, I want to say I'm here at this point in time. There's many times you can ask my wife, there's many times like, you know, this work in treatment, but you know, I, I'm using I statements and I forgot the technique that I was supposed to be using. You know, by now I've been teaching I statements for so many years. That should be automatic. And I feel, yeah, it's different when it's me. <laughs> of, of course it, it is. It feels different when I'm telling somebody else, let's use this technique and let's take a deep breath and let's center ourselves and let's be very present in the moment. And I'm like, but I'm hearing what I'm hearing right now. <laughs> and I'm experiencing what I'm experiencing right now. This mm -hmm. is not therapist me to experience it. This is Travis, the person who had a whole wealth of lived experience. And I sometimes knowledge, I know what I know. Knowledge and insight does not mean change. I Correct. have a knowledge base that does not always match my action. I gain information sometimes that I don't utilize. Yeah. And Application. I don't go into that. No, that that's that's so true, man. And it, it's funny. I, I usually have like a expression about that too, in terms of um there's a lot of things that like we you can cognitively understand something's gonna happen. I usually use kind of like a, a more extreme example, like uh let's say you know that you have like a loved one who is ill, you know they're gonna pass. At some point, you don't know exactly when, but you have like a rough idea. But knowing and experiencing are two different things. So you cognitively understand that it's going to happen. But when it actually happens, it's still going to break you. It's still going to you're still going to experience this rush of emotion of, of probably extreme sorrow and pain, depending on your relationship to them. But you knew ahead of time you were preparing yourself. Right. But it doesn't <laughs> take away the fact that in that moment. That person is no longer here and you have to sit, as Travis mentioned earlier, you got to sit in those emotions and those feelings and understand that. And I think sometimes, you know, we, we try to gloss over that and I get it. Lord knows, I get it. Who wants to really experience pain? Very few people will say, like, put my hand, sign me up. I want it. Most of us will say, no, man, give me the good stuff. Give me the rainbow, the unicorns, Candyland. I'll take all that. I don't want none of the hardship. Can you do that for me? but we don't get to make that decision. So to me, it's, it's, it's his point. And I'm like that you said that, Travis, because I always like to pull the, pull the veil up behind the curtain and say, we're still people. Don't get it twisted and think that therapists don't have to go through any of these challenges or that we always are on and we never make mistakes. 
We do. It's just we usually are a little more aware and we try to catch ourselves before things get too far gone. But it doesn't mean that we don't, of course, have to practice the things that we advise and guide other people through and are going to experience significant challenge because emotions, number one, by definition, are illogical. So they're going to challenge all the cognitive and all the grad school and education. They're going to challenge everything that we know anyway, because that's going to take over our brain. And we really have to catch ourselves. That's where good coping skills you know, need to come into play. So, um, man, the way YouTube brought that together, I think so many people I can just imagine will resonate, Isaiah, with the story that you shared and Travis, the way you added to it for if you're on the other side, because the perception of therapists might be, because I've heard it, oh, you guys look polished, you got it together. I'm sure you you know, you know, ain't going through nothing serious. Like, far from it, brother. Yeah, you spoke about the George Floyd scenario. I distinctly remember sitting in that moment and being a therapist. And I'm all about unconditional positive regard, being congruent, not bringing any outside thing in my life experience in this therapy session. But I was sitting across people that was, and their reaction to what was happening, they're calling me the N-word. Mm. <laughs> and I'm being unconditional, I'm processing out, but then I would leave that therapy session and then it would come back to me that, wow, I just had in a, an hour long experience with somebody where they're responding to me in a negative way based off of what's happening in the world and what's happening in the discussions they're happening in their home. And I was with them, I was processing, I was understanding, I was processing, I'm not trying to convince you that it's a negative word in that moment. It's not my, my goal. Um, but I denied myself. And then when I came back to myself, I had to sit with, wow, like I'm going through this <laughs> while hearing this language being said towards me or said in general ways about people that I would care about. Um, Cause I remember the George Floyd and I remember the car where the guy ran through the individuals um, with a car and I'm like, yeah. And people are talking about it and yeah. going like, oh yeah, he should have. And I'm like, yeah. and he, they're saying that he should have because of the color, the race, the ethnic, um, the ethnicity of those individuals. I'm like, wow. And I have a healthy, unhealthy ability. I'm going to tell one of my secrets. And so if one of my clients ever hear this, they're learning one of my secrets. <laughs> I hate to say it aloud. Don't, 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 give, all, don't give all your tricks. I, I, I can't give them all away, but I'm, I'm going to give this away. I, because I value individual lived experience, I completely detach myself sometimes from the situation. I am so in tune with trying to understand the person's emotions, their thoughts, their feelings, their perspectives, that I completely almost denounce mine. And then I will leave a space and feel everything that I felt that I should have felt in that space later on. Mm, okay. And I'm like, darn, that was heavy. I didn't even know it was heavy when I was sitting there because I'm so... Locked in, in. processing state, locked in to what they're saying, and I didn't process out how it was impacting me because it didn't really matter to me in therapy. It mattered what they were processing. Again, I want you to be authentic self, no matter what that is. Your authentic self does not have to be congruent with me at all. Don't care. Um, but it has weight to it. And so sitting in those spaces sometimes and having to go, I'm, I'm human, and come out of those spaces and say, oh, darn, I'm human. Like that was that was deep, and having to process out with supervisor or my own, I am always, we, they said in our counseling program, I believe it to this day, good therapists get therapy. Um, they process their own emotions, their own feelings, their own thoughts, or they get, at least minimally get supervision from another person outside themselves. Um, and I, I believe in that because I've been in moments where I'm like, God, that week was heavy. And we're talking about George Floyd and I'm a black man. 
amongst colleagues that are not from my background that I'm not having this conversation with. Some of them I am, some of them not. Um, I also processing out with other individuals about what's happening and also having to deal with how I feel while avoiding how I feel in certain spaces. Right. And I spend more time in that space than I spend in my own personal space because I was I was busy during that period of time. I was busy surviving COVID and <laughs> what was happening Heard. in the global community. Heard. It's, it's, yeah. it's crazy. We, we, and we know those are bigger challenges too. I mean, that, that time, you know, we were in the in the early stages of lockdowns on yeah. top of that. So you have those two issues coalescing at the same time. It's just like, man, this is a lot for anybody to deal with. And um, yeah, I, I like that you touched on that because I felt a lot of that too. That's also why that was, that, again, that's why it was a question and why it was so important to me because sort of the light bulb went off for me to pay more attention to the community and seeing how much of them were almost had the light bulb moment go off and realize, Oh, I've been hurting a long time. I need to talk to somebody. And then being very much full of like rage and, and anger and, and, you know, concern for what we were seeing. Cause obviously like Mr. Floyd was just like the beginning of it. Right. We saw other people who also followed afterwards. And I think it brings up a lot, you know, when you have to witness that. I mean, we would, I'm pretty sure we would call that vicarious trauma that you're, that you're witnessing. I mean, for those that watch that video. And um, I think it's a lot for any one person to sit with. And so, but what I would say, because I am pretty good at reframing, I do believe a lot in trying to find silver linings and things, because I don't know if I'd be here today if I didn't find a way to get good at that since I was very young. I was very happy with what I saw from the community. Number one, with men, but two, black people as a whole, I saw the conversation start to shift, right? So like I, I started watching like um, celebrities, personalities on like the radio, stuff like that. People were talking, like I was usually talk about like Charlemagne on The Breakfast Club. You started seeing different people talk about their own experience, going to therapy regularly, writing books about it, encouraging other brothers and sisters to go do it. And I just, I don't remember in my lifetime, I'm 35, I don't remember hearing a lot about that since I was a child. And that to me was like, even though it was so despicable to see, I was like, man, afterwards, what if that was a, a, a pivotal turning point in our history as a, as a society? And then more importantly, in our cultural community to finally go and address a lot of that hurt and that pain that we historically don't. I don't know if you would agree, Trav. I don't know, Isaiah, if, if you felt anything like that um, for yourself. I think the national attention that it received was impactful and significant. As we know, like you said, there were several incidents after and several incidents prior to that that occurred that were not acknowledged. And so the fact that that acknowledgement that this space was producing a certain level of reaction from parties within our culture and outside of our culture is a yeah. significant shift and the dialogue and the conversation I was having because you can't move anything forward if both parties are not willing to dialogue and have a conversation. And I'm not saying right now that all the dialogue is finished and right. everything has resulted in a progressive, happy, good state, but to begin to have those conversations, like you said, and see that shift in the culture, to see the shift in, I need to take care of myself. This was traumatizing to begin to shift and we have the knowledge, the feelings, and the thoughts of other people was significant. And so I, I agree with you in that regard that I, I that that conversation and having those conversations and the increasing conversations that have came out of that and other incidents 
have creative ground where we can start doing work and putting action, as Isaiah said, to thought. Yes. Isaiah, anything you want to add to that, brother? Um, I just thought of when that happened, it did bring me into bring me into action. Um, uh, like we spoke offline, he was probably number twelve or thirteen of the publicized murder and and or assassination mm-hmm. of a of an African American individual in this country. Um, for some, but for some reason, it was his that sparked me into action to do something. But my thought, um, coincidentally enough, was more of the micro. It was about not the conversation and nothing against, I am not, but take a piece of curve, I am not any type of racist, xenophobist, or prejudice of any matter. But for some reason, and I didn't watch the video, I, had, I was deep into my second year therapy, and I knew I couldn't watch that because as a black man, I could not. I couldn't even watch the, what's the Netflix. What's the Netflix? Um, when they see us, oh At yeah, two. I was I threw that away because I was way too close to home, and I had too much of a of, of palpitations. I probably could have had a real panic attack of watching when he. Yeah. I can't. I can't even remember some of their name because I didn't watch it. But that video of when he's in a classroom being interrogated, I could not. I, the because the body can't really differentiate between what's happening. And for a moment, it was real. So I don't want my body to get used to that type of blood rush and palpitation. Right. Um, but when that, when George Floyd happened, I had to spring into action for some reason. And so I decided to focus on the micro. And I thought about the person-to-person interaction between Black men versus what, what's going on on Twitter, what's going on on Facebook. Yes, did I interact with them? Yes. Did I speak to some people outside of my race who weren't my specific demographic? Yes. But when I saw that moment, I was like, there has to be, not has to be something, but there's something with us. There's something particular with the demographic of being black and being a natural born male that why does this keep happening? Mm-hmm. And so I started to have those conversations more with black men. And to like you said, the conversation is happening more with us and we're having more different conversations also. Yes. Not just the blue police brutality, like, we're starting to talk about way more stuff in the locker room, in the barbershop, so to speak, about other things. We're starting yes. to talk about actual gen- things of gender, things of sexual fluidity, things of consent. We're, we're actually hearing men talk about consent. I'm not bashing a black man, no way, but I have been this in this show my entire <laughs> life. I've been a black, around black women my entire life. And I'm not to say the conversation is always coercion or whatever, but we've never sit and ask the homie, hey, bro, you asked to have something? Did you ask to have with her? Did you ask for her consent? I've legitimately, before George Fuller happened, I never heard a black man ask another black man, did you ask for consent? Now that's happening in most of my group chats. And most of the, especially with millennials, it's happening. And so that was, you're right, he is the catalyst and I don't know why we have to have martyrs. I mean, I would much rather that black man be alive than like the other 13. Correct. Why we have to have martyrs is this one of the saddest things on, on planet Earth. But things are getting better for our community, but between amongst us. So I, be, I do believe in the silver lining. Man, I, I couldn't agree with you more, man. I, I do wish that they could all still be here and that those circumstances wouldn't, I wouldn't even say feel necessary because I don't think they were necessary, they were necessary, but I do believe that they were catalysts 
uh, to get a lot of us to, because it had to be so, it, it kind of, I forgot who I was talking to, but we, we were having a conversation somehow it came to civil rights and it was kind of like, that was our Dr. King moment. That's kind of what the conclusion that we came to something like, like, you know, on the, on the Evan Pettish bridge, like that thing that was so heinous that people had to watch, right. That Dr. King was mm. like, you know, I need them to see it so that they can be outraged and say, this is not acceptable. Right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. for those of us that did watch it, I forced myself to, I wasn't comfortable at all, but I made myself watch it because I needed that. I'm very visual. I needed that to be burned in my brain so that I would never forget. And that's why I related it to me in my mind was just like that for both of those situations. And I was like, you know, sometimes I know it, it seems like we have to have those situations transpire for us to kind of have our awakening, if you will, and, and be willing to really start doing the work so that we can hopefully prevent these issues from happening in the future. Um, but I just noticed it, that it was a very, I would say, polarizing issue, again, for those who are not in the community and those that are, but also I will give a lot of credit to those that are not, that seem to also be, very, not I won't say equally, but very outraged by it as well and wanted to actually do something, which you know we saw the subsequent protests afterwards. Um, so challenging topic, but I agree. And I'm happy that we are talking about, you talked about consent. I also don't remember ever having that conversation. I'm glad that we're talking about this stuff. And, um, and I actually, I just remembered something to you, Isaiah, uh, and Travis, I'm pretty sure my father, I do not remember having the birds and the beast conversation. I will legitimately tell you, cause to me in my mind, it's so outrageous. It's very short. I remember coming home from school one day. And I had a big desk in my room and I just literally had a giant box of condoms on my desk. And I went to my father's room and I asked him, I said, Hey, obviously extremely uncomfortable. <laughs> hey, did you leave something in my room? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, is it for you? He's like, nah, it's for you. And that was it. Wow. And my father's a nurse. Like, like, like he knows that stuff. I'm like, why would you not tell me about like how my body is changing, about women, e- ejaculation, masturbation? Like, why would you not want to talk to me about these things? Mm-hmm. Cut, cut straight through it. So, again, building that relationship. That's why I know as a father, it's so important to create that level of comfortability because some stuff is just awkward, man. Like, we get it. Um, but what happens when you don't, man, you're seeking the information not, uh, elsewhere. Not what are the young guys going to do now? Probably going to go on YouTube, probably going to look at pornography, probably talk yeah. to their homeboys, all this stuff. And like, oh yeah, that's real. No, it's not, man. <laughs> but you don't know no better because you don't got that relationship with somebody pull you to the side and say, Hey, come here, man. Let me start talking to you about the real. Mm-hmm. So anyways. I'm going to come back to you, Isaiah, because we didn't, uh, we started to touch on this, but I just wanted to ask you like a follow-up question when you were talking about when you initially sought out therapy. I know you said that you didn't have any particular hesitation or reservations when you went out, but have you known other brothers or sisters out there who might have, you might have talked about it and noticed any particular things that they verbalized to you that if you had said like, oh, you know, like you said, passively showing your growth. Mm. And when they're seeing that, it's like, oh, you went to therapy? Okay, cool. Do you remember hearing anything come up that say like, oh, yeah, but I can't do that because, or we don't do that. Can you uh, speak to that? So, and to the, usually I've been, I'm in a lot of uh, metaverse groups about usually around millennials. So the, the conversation around the millennials, of course, is more progressive and it's, it's, it's better. Around that space, 
the the issue is really healthcare. Is our America's healthcare system about pain and about availability? And mm-hmm. right now, the black therapist is like the new rock star. It's a, y'all are y'all are about to pop and be like super popular. <laughs> and so my my counselor, he's booked and busy like he's a Instagram model or a, or a rapper. <laughs> Sometimes when we're on our session, I can see him writing things down and trying to probably he's pre he's probably compartmentalizing and which is fine he's doing he does a, a, an amazing job um but yeah that's the only thing about healthcare availability and um price with the healthcare now in the larger groups with some of the where I'm mixed in with gen xers and boomers um i've seen i've seen and heard some crazy things i mean i've heard people say it's cliche but i've heard the quintessential I got God, I got Jesus. Um, I've seen and heard it's not what is it gonna do just to talk someone talk to someone? Mm-hmm. I've seen and heard um what is that gonna do for me? Does it really work? Um and everything to mm, I don't know, simple deflection, simple like I don't need it. That's the biggest thing for me. Okay. Someone saying like it's like the mirror thing, like no one self accountability. Someone's saying like, well, "What would I need therapy for?" And then there's the knee jerk reaction of, "What do you mean?" And I'm a so happenstance. Like I work in the tech industry, so I'm a little. I'm not like Elon Musk. I'm not pretty robotic and like ter- extraterrestrial in the tech sense. I'm I'm very humanoid, flu- fluid, empathetic, sympathetic. But sometimes things have to be logic logical for me and make sense. How could you as a person think that you have everything figured out? Like you being an organic organism and you thinking that you either may not need to talk to somebody or you need help. Are you really like, and I don't want to go into the religious aspect, but you don't have to you can have Jesus and a therapist. You do know it's possible. Like Jesus is not a real person. And he doesn't charge you. So it's <laughs> cost more to have Jesus and a therapist. So why that doesn't occur to older generations nothing personal i'm just that's just never clicked with me but overall i would say with like we said before post george floyd it's a little more positive of course us as black people are talking about it more and it's a little it's a little more of an open conversation that's good that's good to hear man and i and i I agree with some of the points that you mentioned too like i said earlier uh, religious and faith leaders is usually, in my experience growing up, I grew up in, uh, just for the sake of the example, I grew up in Latino churches and I grew up in black churches. And from my experience, most of the time we go to the faith leader if we have an issue, whether it's relational with like your spouse or your partner or even dealing with your children, you, you, you go to church. So, which again, we're not at all trying to discriminate and saying like you shouldn't engage in that if that's your process. But I really, I want to emphasize the point, the last point you just made, Isaiah. Why couldn't we have two? And to further emphasize what you said, that because you went, you brought me back to the point I was trying to make earlier about baking in room, as I would say, to be wrong. Because we have to always remember that we have a very strong implicit bias, right? That's my worldview. That's my egocentric worldview. I like minored in anthropology. So I remember when I started learning that stuff, I was like, oh yeah, that totally makes sense. You see things from your perspective. It's really hard to convince you or me or anybody to deem it otherwise. 
But even if you give it like a 0.1% or 1% chance that you could be wrong, you're more likely to be open to hearing other people's thoughts and maybe entertaining the fact that it could be something other than the way that you see it. But it's very hard because you have to have a lot of awareness and you have to really consciously focus on that. But to your point, though, if I'm aware enough and I'm putting in that effort and I'm maybe going and seeking out doing my therapy, it will be easier for me over time to to refine that skill. But I'm hopeful that because so many of us are starting to, let's say, positively associate engaging in therapy, no longer, I don't know if you guys would say this, but maybe no longer only hearing like, oh, you're crazy as the knee jerk reaction when you say therapy. It's like, oh, you talk to somebody, you got some stuff going on, good for you. Mm -hmm. Like I would hope for that, that that becomes the way our responses are in general, not you're flawed, you're broken, you know, it's always going to be like that. Again, the other deflections you mentioned, what is it going to benefit? Talking to them ain't going to fix anything. Well, number one, we don't fix you. Number one, you help fix yourself. We help you. We, as Travis said, we're along for the ride. We're a guy. We can be an advisor. We are there to try to understand your perspective. Again, the bias is strong. I need to understand what your bias tells you about the world that you encounter every day. But you got to be willing to give some breathing room to consider an alternative viewpoint. I don't know if you want to add anything to, anything to that, Travis. I think y'all did phenomenal. It would just be extra noise if I added something. <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe in extra noise, sir, but okay. Okay. But um, going back to you, Travis, though, on a similar note with what Isaiah was talking about, do you notice uh, this is specific to when you were working or have been working more with the black community? Have you noticed any more common issues that people tend to present with uh, initially? It's weird because I've been having dialogue about this because I am so anti-black people or monolithic and that this is just, we all do deal and struggle with the same thing. That right. I, my mind always goes in that direction. I'm like, common. I'm like, yeah, let's move away from talking about common to let's talk about the individual. Um, but I think, in looking at the population I work with now, so I'm going to base off the population I work with now. Um, I'm currently working at an institution, as I said. I'm now serving as the advisor of a living learning, living learning community that was established by me and two other individuals. Um, and it's a Black male initiative. Um, working with younger black males and helping with identity formation and helping them recognize their true sense of self and how it relates to the world around them in a chaotic world. I always say now, they're more distracted than I ever was as a child. The social media area with um, accessibility to certain information, certain knowledge of those things, their level of distraction increased. I'm not gonna age myself, I'm gonna age myself. My first cell phone was a Nokia. The one with the buttons. Oh, I remember those. Phone. Yeah, brick phone. Those. The ones that yeah, like you, that bag. I remember. Yeah, yeah, you know, solid one. I wasn't there distracted by pictures on that phone. I couldn't get pictures on that phone. And Correct. the test message out, you hit the buttons multiple times to get that one letter for that, <sighs> for that word. And it's sending the case. Yeah. Okay. Keep hitting it. Keep hitting it. Keep hitting it. I'm getting there. I'm, I'm, I'm going to respond back quickly as I can. But now you have the ability to text instantly. That instant response, that instant satisfaction, that instant gratification. Mm -hmm. You have the instant ability to do 
see a person to engage and gather information and gather knowledge. Like I love Google. Google has saved my life many of a time. But you know, I also love the fact that I had to go through a thesaurus. When I tell people, what is a thesaurus? Like, Trevor, what are you talking about? I'm like, that's a book that had words in it, like a dictionary, but it's not a dictionary. <laughs> but I take the time to actually do the work and research and build a level of conversation that they don't have to do now. And so I'm finding myself uh, teaching them how to cope through the distractions. Like, let's recognize you're very much distracted. Let's recognize we're no longer just focusing on father issues. I know we're talking about father issues, but now we're more or less focusing on how do we allow you to develop goals, obtain goals, and work through those goals. Let's mm -hmm. talk about strategic planning. Let's talk about bidding, building and networking. And so I think specific to the population that I work with now, it's about, as I mentioned to you, RJ, when we were talking off, off camera, is about exposure. I'm talking about mm -hmm. exposure so much. Now there's things that you don't know if you would have known, you would have make you would make vastly different decisions. So let's work on exposing ourselves to right. things, experiencing things, trying new food, going outside the norm, having conversations with other individuals. And so I'm finding that to happen now. Also, I'm finding now that there's this big acceptance of, oh, I have these multiple diagnoses that I'm uncomfortable with. They walk into spaces and going, well, I have this disorder, this disorder, this disorder. I'm like, whoa, whoa slow, slow down. Why do you have all the disorders? That's if you look at your culture, if you look at your lived experience, you're not you don't have all those diagnoses. You don't have all those issues that come in. Well, do you know my problems? Like I'm finding individuals coming in and talking to me. It's like, well, I already know the ACEs. I've had this trauma that happened in my life. Like, oh, oh let, let's reshape. Let's redefine what trauma is. Yeah. Let's see if you take really a, take, have a, take a step back real quick. Let's make sure we, we're understanding the same vocabulary and jargon that yeah. we're using. Yeah. And they're like, no, I, I have trauma. I'm gonna tell you about my trauma. No, that's an unfortunate event. That's not trauma. <laughs> Your response to that unfortunate event is pretty normal. Um, and so re renegotiating, redefining those things. I find that while as, whereas people are more receptive to mental health, I'm now kind of reshaping, redefining their dialogue, their definitions, and kind of what they say about themselves. It's like, oh, you know, my family messed up, and so I'm messed up. And like, that's not the epitome of your life. Just because your family, you come from a certain family background, it does not necessarily define the fullness of who you are. That's just for right. other sides of you that make an account for some of those negative situations. So that's what I'm, I think I'm experiencing as a professional now is navigating, you know, resources now, navigating exposure, navigating experience, navigating how to redefine some of the definitions that they have taken hold of and yeah. people more receptive to mental health and kind of renegotiating the this idea of self-diagnosis. I, I clinically, I don't like it. Um, I don't come in here with a list and go, I think I'm all these things. Let, let, let's talk to the individual first before mm -hmm. we go through your list of all these problems you have. <laughs> let's meet you. Um, yes. So navigating that a little bit more is something I, I am being aware of. But for me, the two populations I work in is all about resources. Resources and exposure. If you don't know, we'll hurt you. Yes. Because ignorant is not bliss. I don't care what no. the world say, it has an impact. No, it does. It, no, it, it, it does, man. And I appreciate you sharing that. And I, I'm big on the exposure aspect as well. Um, again, because I think when you know better, you do better. When you see other things in different walks of life and the way people behave and interact, it gives you more. Uh, I think there's more that you can internalize in a healthy way to you know, not only expand your horizons, but it might help you avoid certain pitfalls that maybe you wouldn't have experienced had you been stuck in your own local maybe community, we could say. Mm -hmm. 
And so I, I definitely appreciate that. And thinking about the population, number one, kudos to you. And I'm glad those brothers have you because, you know, again, we've talked about that offline. You know, I don't even remember a lot of black professionals in higher education. Like when I was in school, I mean, I do remember some women. I'm not going to sit here and say like there wasn't some sisters out there, but I definitely don't remember a lot of men. Uh, definitely not professors. And even in schools like K through 12, I don't know about you guys. I don't know a lot of black male teachers. I actually have one black male teacher as a client. And I specifically, uh, he's a pro bono client of mine. And I took him because I was like, man, you're rare. Like, I know I'm rare in my field. I'm in a white female dominated profession. You are too. So I want to support you because I know you, you know, there's not enough of people like you out there. Um, kind of same situation as, as what you were talking about, Travis, being in the community and, and largely catering and dealing with uh, other children from the community. So I think, you know, there's something to be said for that. You know, we want to raise awareness. So I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up. And I think the more exposure that we have and understanding that there is such a deficiency there and that we need to bring more people to that cause, whether they are involved in this work or they want to get involved in it. Again, we want to promote and encourage more brothers and sisters out there to uh, con consider going down this particular path, whether it's through mental health, higher education, teaching, IT, like whatever it is that you want to do, but go into it with your eyes wide open, be willing to accept new information and possibly expand your horizons beyond what you were culturally taught was relevant and appropriate. Mm -hmm. But we know that takes time, right? We're not going to change this probably not even in our lifetimes, mm -hmm. but I'm hopeful and I'm optimistic, you know, that if we keep working at this, that slowly we can get there. Um, so let me get off my soapbox again. Uh, to you, Isaiah, this is my final question to you, unless something else comes up. Speaking back to the concerns that people might have from our community to go seek out services, just from your experience, is there any particular type of guidance or advice that you would offer to them to help them be more encouraged to start the journey? Hmm. I'm going to talk about their ecosystem and then go inside because it's more about who else around you could help you but rather than me here but for the sake of here i'll do that but be around people who are kind of different different from you in the sense that they seem like they're self-aware they seem not that they have things on a handle but it seems like when things happen to them you're sitting asking them how can you be so calm dig into that talk have that conversation like if it comes up to you it's like is, is are you seeing someone are you talking to someone do you go to therapy maybe they have and then that conversation with your friend with that emotional connection is going to help you lock that in your brain is going to sew that in tie a knot way harder than me but usually what i do is start with the conversation of being more open um that's all from what i learned all therapy truly is. I think you said it before. Um, it's someone holding up a mirror mm -hmm. to you and saying, this is you. This is what you're doing. When we trace this back to childhood, this happened, this happened, this happened. Let's move forward. This is kind of why you're doing that. Here's the connection. Let's figure out a solution. Mm -hmm. And that has to start with you being more open, open about what happened during that childhood. Can you do that? Where does that start? What self? all self-accountability is what really therapy is so can you talk to yourself first can you physically go in the mirror and look at me and say that happened how about we talk about it 
One thing that helps me personally, I can say about my personal account in this session, is both my therapists, they told me that I need to have this conversation with my father. And they said, if well, if you can't have it with him, then you need to have it in your head. Imagine him and just start talking. Mm-hmm. Or you need to write it down. Oh, All yeah. that says is you need to get it out. That's what right. I'm saying. I'm, I'm kind of talking around it. Get it out. It's poisoning you. That poison you're holding inside, hoping that someone else will feel it. You're just hurting yourself. You're killing yourself, essentially. So start from within. Be honest with yourself. Start talking. I don't know if you worry about whether you're going to be crazy or not. It doesn't matter. What matters is, are you going to be healthier? What What really matters? Do you want to be a better human being? Ask yourself that also. No, 100%, 100% man. Yeah. And then starting from there, it'll help easier for you to have the conversation about therapy for anyone or go seeking it because you have to do work. Yes. We, we, we can underline that five times under, put 50,000 exclamation marks under the last part. And I agree with the, with the being open and really being comfortable to, to share and be vulnerable. To me, that's, that's one of the hardest parts um, I found with people. You know, just being extremely guarded. And like you said, when you see the childhoods we come from, sometimes you get it. Why? You're so guarded. You, you probably needed to be. But to recognize some of the effects it's been having on us, that's when you got to look in that mirror and realize like, you know, okay. And I think, Trav, I think you might remember this because I remember hearing this in school. Um, like those things that you did then, they might have helped you deal with and navigate and traverse the environments that you grew up in, right? That probably were largely unhealthy, mm-hmm. but you're not in that environment anywhere. So, but you're still utilizing those skills and tools that were somewhat functional, we could say, but they're no longer here. And you got to change that. You got to be willing to recognize the difference between these two situations and make those adjustments in your life so that you're no longer keeping all those things in. And I love the last thing that you said. I was just call that basically externalizing. You got to externalize mm-hmm. your feelings. I'm a big believer in journaling. I ask every single client I have ever to journal because it forces you to, to introspectively look on your life and learn to reflect on what you're experiencing in real time. Because a lot of times we minimize what we experience. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, it wasn't that bad. Or I was really pissed off that day. But then I'm thinking about it five days later. And of course, the level of intensity emotionally is, is minuscule. No, I need you to capture it in that moment. I want to talk about what happened then and how intense it was for you. So we can try to draw the connection and connect those dots. What did it mean? But if we're, don't, if we're not capturing those snapshots, it can be relatively difficult to do that, particularly you know, if you're meeting um, even in like a, a weekly frequency. It can mm-hmm. be difficult to, to be able to capture that. So yes, getting it outside of you, however you need to do that, talk to yourself. I have some people, you know, do a voice memo. You can record yeah. yourself, <laughs> however you need to do it, but talk it out. And one other thing I wanted to touch that you said, Isaiah, because I personally had to do this, full transparency. I had to role play talking to my father in therapy because we weren't talking. And I remember my therapist had me, it was two chairs. She prefaced me before, like two sessions prior. She's like, but we're going to do this because you need to. She set up the two chairs. I had to sit in the one chair. That was me being my dad. And I sat in my chair and that was me being me. She's like, you, you know him pretty well, right? So say what he would say to you. And I just, you know, tore myself down and beat myself up. Uh, Cause you know, that was, that was my lived experience. 
And as uncomfortable and emotionally draining as that was, I genuinely felt better afterwards, even not communicating with that person because I was finally letting all that stuff out and not allowing it to just keep choking me from the inside. So mm -hmm. I really love that part that you mentioned. And I hope anybody that might be experiencing that, even if you don't talk to somebody immediately, at least consider finding a way to get it outside of you. That's a great first step. I don't know if you want to add anything to that, Travis. No, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Because I always, if I ever get on a soapbox, it'd be about journaling, because that's something that I'm passionate about too. I think every therapist is journal, journal. But I always, when I talk about it, I always talk about journaling is not just writing something down. Mm -hmm. If you write music, you are journaling. If you do poetry, you can journal through poetry. Journaling mm -hmm. can be affirmations that you put on your wall um, and that you're reciting over and over again. Journaling is not just documenting through, hey, on July the 16th, I woke up. <laughs> I had a great day. It's not just that. It's just getting right. out your feelings and expressing those thoughts and getting them outside of you. When people ask me what's the magic of therapy, the magic of therapy is having a safe environment for you to be authentically you and to say it without any thought around the consequences, the feelings, the, anything associated with the, what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Be amongst another human being and the power of just saying, I'm going to say this. And I don't have to worry about consequences. I don't have to navigate your feelings. I don't have to navigate your perspective on it. I'm just going to say it. And I can sit in it and we can sit in it together. It's powerful. If you, yeah. Like you said, like both of you guys said, if you can't do that, find another way to do it. If that is, you know, using your phone and voice memoing, as you said, or utilizing other resources, but getting it out is powerful. That's the crucial part of it. Releasing it, letting it go, and being able to look at it outside of yourself is always helpful because you have to look at it outside of yourself sometimes. It's hard when we're in these, these bodies to perceive it in a healthy way, but if I can take it outside of me and go, oh, this is what this was like. Yeah. Oh, I, can, I can give advice to it now. I can speak to it. Correct. <laughs> Correct, man. See, and there you go. That's exactly the conclusion. Most of my clients, that's when they get shocked. You know, we look at it and say, oh, man, that's why you had me do that? Like, yeah, because number one, I got to say this last little thing on journaling because this is my soapbox and I'm very proud to say it. None of us are mind readers. So I don't know what you're thinking and I definitely don't know what you've been going through and how you've been feeling. So to me, journaling is the greatest tool for me to learn your perspective and your outlook on life, how you see things in real time. You have to give me that so I can experience it long enough to be like, oh, okay, I, I'm getting a sense of why you started to react that way. But I, I'm not just gonna be able to pull that from nowhere. I gotta see what, how you normally deal with those situations from you externalizing it via you sharing it with me directly, self-reporting, you wrote it in an app, you put it on a, on a pen and paper, you voice recorded it, you filmed yourself on, TikTok or Snapchat, whatever you did, I need that because it helps. Because then, yes, as you said, Travis, and that to me was the best thing you just said there. You can sort of start to objectively look at it. Oh, I had this, okay, so these bubble of emotions happen in this particular situation. What would I tell that person? Maybe I have some good insight and then say, hey, but that was you. You thought of that thing. So now take the same guidance you just gave to your that person. Now do it. And you fixed your issue, right? So to me, that's the power of doing that. So I, I don't know if every therapist does that, but I, to me, it is a standard practice. Like you, if you work with me, you gotta do it. You have to do it. 
And I hope that more people, even, again, even if you're not working with a therapist right now or any professional, to please consider doing that because it might help you just gain awareness introspectively into some of the things that you might be dealing with because it would allow you to, what I would say, stand beside yourself and start to consider another viewpoint. So journaling, we big up that. 100%. <laughs> and then finally for you, Travis, um, since we, you know, you've been gracious enough to talk a lot about the experiences that you've had and the different communities that you serve, I just wanted to also ask you, like, what are some of your thoughts about the future in the field for you? And what are some of the things maybe you want to continue to work on and address as you gain more experience? Yeah. Um, I think the future of the field. We always talk about it. The research that around providing treatment was not shaped by individuals. That not, a lot of it wasn't shaped by individuals that look like me or come from a particular background. That may we have a lot of research on multicultural therapy, multicultural techniques, and those things. I'm not saying it's not there and available, but I think we begin to think about adding to the current knowledge. It's important. There's some shifts that I've made professionally, and I shared this with RJ previously that I was never a self-disclosure therapist. I was always about, it's about you. So I'm not going to say anything about myself in this treatment. I was to the point where I'm like, you can have pictures up of me. You have like pictures related to me. I'm a superhero guy. I would have like superhero pictures in the room because I want you to know I'm a human being. Anything (laughs) personal, personal, I don't want to add it to the space for you to take it in consideration when we're processing things out. And so I was, it was difficult for me to transition to self-disclosure, but now I'm learning the, and not now learning, but I've learned throughout my experience that the significant importance of self-disclosure within the communities that I work in, that having a, a good connection with that person and being able to know when to input information that's relevant to the situation that will unlock a level of comfortability for that other person, the significance of that, and talking about how culturally it's significant. And when I'm working with young males, how they're going, I need more than just a therapist. I need a mentor. I need a big brother. I need all these things. And so shifting some of that conversation away from some of the traditional forms of treatment to how do we engage people currently where they are? Maybe the research needs to be reevaluated. Maybe it needs to be extended. Maybe people within our position needs to go out and need to go out and do that additional research to be able to add to the field of knowledge that we have now. And so when I look at where things are going, I'm hoping to add to that field of knowledge. I'm hoping to work more closely with African-American males. I'm hoping to be able to deal with some of the issues that they have faced and be able to particularly work from a, I think me and RJ talked about this before, beginning of my career, wasn't necessarily my focus. I just wanted to work with trauma. And now I want to work with African-American male trauma. Right. I want to work more readily in the population to which I ascribe to. Yes, yes. And that's something that I have grown passionate and, and me self-actualizing, me forming my identity, helping other individuals do so. And so I think that's something to look into. I hated being the guy, because you're Black, you have to talk about Black issues. Right. <laughs> I don't want to always raise with, you know the Black issues, what if I don't? What if I don't receive the knowledge? I'm right. not an expert just because I'm in the skin. Right. Um, I may have some knowledge, but I'm not an expert on everything. And so Correct. now I'm okay with being that guy. Now you see a Black male, hey, Travis, Sure, bet I'm here. I know they need it. And I know the significance of me being in this space. And so I'm no longer resistant to it in the same way. And I think having other professionals be less resistant to serving their demographics 
Yes. Be not because we're trying to fight the standard of you're black, you know the black issues, but because the necessity of having a person, a representation, a person in that space with you. I think being more receptive to that and talking about that is essential to moving our field forward. Yes, man. Absolutely. Preach on. And I, I would add to that because I love the self-disclosure part, you know, and I told you I'm very much that, that always felt like I don't know how your experience has been, Isaiah, with your therapist, but I didn't grow up like that. And in school, they don't teach us like that. They teach us to be very guarded and you don't, you're not really supposed to share much about yourself because the really, you know, the client is the focus, which I agree. But I told Travis that like that never gelled with me because I feel like it's missing a great opportunity to develop rapport with that person so that they can see that you're a real person that you go through hardship and you go through difficulties as well. And I want to add to something you said, Travis, because I had this conversation actually recently with some clients and some colleagues. So you talk about meeting people where they are, right? So working with a young teen, um, I'll just paint a picture of an example, um, hip hop. So I'm big into, in, into the different uh, layers to that and the different artists out there. And sometimes like, for example, if I have, let's say a young, a young man who, doesn't know a lot of the feeling words to describe how he's feeling, but he, he, he knows certain tracks that he vibes with. Bring it into the session. Like, let me learn based on what they're talking about to help formulate maybe a, a better conception of what it is that you might be dealing with at that moment in time. And recently, which I was very happy with, I don't know if you guys have heard it, but I'll bring it up because I had both colleagues and some clients bring it up was like Kendrick Lamar's new album. And we were talking about it. And I was like, man, that's a great opportunity to connect with people who may appreciate that uh, body of work and also the topics that were being raised, because I certainly connected and resonated with a lot of it. And I like that I can do that because they're like, oh, yeah, you're older than me, but you listen to some of the similar things that I do. And even the stuff I'm not familiar with because they're younger than me, I'm still trying to get, you know, gather that information because I think it can be culturally relevant and appropriate and help bring those walls down just a little bit more. They're like, oh, OK, yeah, you really are. You really are similar to me. Like, that's cool. I appreciate that you don't dismiss it. Like, oh, it ain't, it's not traditional or it's not old school. So like, you don't rock with it. Cause there's, we know there's meanings. There's, there's value if you dig a little deeper. And I always want to, I always want to appreciate that. So I love that part of meeting people where they are. Sometimes when I'm working with a younger person and they don't know those words, I might bring, I might ask them to bring in that music or that art or that poetry or whatever it is that speaks to them to help them develop the words to really speak truth to power about what it is that they're experiencing. And, and I hope that there's more of us out there that choose to engage in that way if you're going to work, particularly in this population. Because I would say it in the context of we're relatively young in this space in terms of being comfortable seeking out these types of services. So we're going to be sort of like a novice. And we're not going to know the best ways to, in to interact. And we don't all have parents who are walking us through. This is kind of what it looks like when you go to talk to somebody professionally. So again, meeting people where they're at. I don't know if there's anything, Isaiah, that you wanted to just share with that at all. That's what I've been trying to do in my whole advocacy uh, trail that I guess I'm trying to blaze for myself. There's other advocates, but I've learned that I've, I used to, she's, um, created a lot of spice, I guess, in the mental health world as far as professionals, but I used to watch Miss Von Zant, Ayana Von Zant, and yeah. um, she said that. She said sometimes, and it, it wasn't in the positive way that you're saying, it's someone, it was a woman, it was a married couple, and a woman is 
pretty antagonistic. She was always yelling. Mm-hmm. And and Miss Von Zant just got up and she started yelling. She started to get belligerent. And of course, you know, there's people watching. Oh, I thought she was a therapist. Oh, I thought she was a coach. She's supposed to be calm and look at her. She's supposed to be teaching people. And then the next episode, she came and she said, listen, sometimes you got to meet people where they at. <laughs> you don't bring it here. Then, then uh, unfortunately, and co- coincidentally, that's how you process information. That mm. is how you speak. That's something I had to learn from certain other women. Like, they grow up in a household of just yelling and distress. And then after a while, when you listen to someone have a conversation and their octave is higher and you're like, are you Okay. And someone, and they look at you and say, what do you mean? Okay, I'm just talking. It's right. just like, oh, that's how you communicate because you function in dysfunction. And so, you, like you said, you got to meet people where you're at. So that's what I'm trying to do in advocacy and speaking about therapy and just speaking about, maybe not even therapy, just positive ways of thinking about certain situations. Like, mm-hmm. oh, you may not be privy to this word. What's some other word that I think you may know? Or what could I talk about over here? And this is not being negative or I'm thinking I'm better than, but maybe misdirection. I could come from the back door rather than from the front door. You may be better with this path or you may understand this other information or this other area. Could I put the medicine in in the candy? Mm -hmm. Um, I'm trying to be more of a servant of that because like we said, uh, maybe in the beginning of the show, Asking someone straight up, are you in therapy or have you thought about therapy? Doesn't pan out well at all. You're going <laughs> to start an argument. People are going to just be triggered. And they're yeah. going to start, I, I say they're going to start um, trauma vomiting, which is going to start projecting. And, um, but yeah, that's what I've learned. And that's how I'm trying to carry this conversation and be of aid. Beautiful, man. Nah, we, and I, I hope I can speak for Travis and other therapists. I say we appreciate you for being willing to not only to bear those parts of your story, but again, to encourage other people out there to really seek that help in whatever way. And I'm a big believer in like, you know, the way we deliver these messages and the words that we choose to use, they always matter in any situation, because as you said, um, you can say something in a very direct manner, like, oh, you should probably go talk to somebody. And they might very easily get offended for whatever reason. Objectively, you just say that, and but right, all the problem. Right. But I also like I want to go back to what you said earlier, because I usually frame it this way. When you talked about how your experience and you doing a lot of this work and it sort of allowed you to start to demonstrate and display different behaviors that other people could observe. Right. I think of it. I liken it to if I was wildly overweight and then I started losing weight and then you saw me and you remembered me when I was overweight, you're like, oh, you're doing something different. What's changed? Uh, I got a nutritionist. I started eating differently. I started working out more regularly, things like that. And it, it's a very passive way. as I, That's how I phrase it. It's a passive way to encourage somebody to start the process. I'm not coming to you and say, you look horrible. You need to go do this, blah, 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 blah. Because of course, you're going to be met with resistance because the way you're choosing to, to deliver that message to that person. But if I'm letting myself be the example, and, and if somebody's like kind of curious, hmm, what's changed about you? Like something feels different than like the way you've been communicating or like your energy is different. Well, um, I just had my session yesterday. So, you know, I got a lot of the stuff out that I've been thinking about the last like week or so. And I don't know, I just felt really lighter today. Hmm. Okay. Can you tell me more about that? And allowing for like a little more curiousness and being inquisitive 
to maybe take over that person instead of them feeling like, no, you're judging them and you're pushing them because you think that their life is all messed up and that you're the one that's going to help save them. So I'm always a big believer in like how you deliver that message is really going to matter. And if we really walk the walk and we just sort of exemplify and demonstrate it, it's going to be easier for people to want to get on board later. So again, kudos to you, Isaiah, for doing that type of work, man, and really trying to help uplift, you know, what we're doing, because I think it's only going to help encourage more people out there to really get started. I will invite you both in for some final thoughts or any closing thoughts or remarks you want to share because this has been a hell of a conversation. I'm very, very grateful. Anybody? Just remember, you go first. <laughs> <laughs> Don't all go at once. Um, uh, one, as RJ said, I just want to honor you being very open and expressive, Isaiah, because for me, that's always a big deal. I, I genuinely appreciate when people are able to share their experiences and their stories with a mass amount of people, even with just one person. So for me, I honor that space. Definitely, RJ, I thank you for giving us this platform yes, to sir. be able to have this dialogue and have this conversation. And so I, I honor just the ability to be able to dialogue and to be able to share this information or discuss these things openly in this way. And I think my closing thoughts have been said, you know, ultimately self-actualization and healing are journey. It's better to start the journey now than to start the journey 20 years from now. Mm-hmm. And then have to go back and look back at it and say, wow, I could have done this. Like in my experience as a therapist, the hardest thing that is hard for me to hear, and, and I've heard a lot, is to hear people in their 80s come to me and say, I've had this life but I have not appreciated any of it. I have the family, I have the this, and I had a career and I've retired, but it's not what I wanted. And from the outside, it looks like it's what I should have wanted, but it's not what I imagined for my life. And all I had to do is make a pivotal decision in my life to get help, to take that journey, to make those changes. And I could have ideally had what I wanted in life had I chose to take action, as you said. So I reiterate what you said, take action. Don't just put it in thought. Don't just put it in perspective. That's where it starts is the action. Yeah. Well, I would say, Travis, thank you for the affirmation. I wholeheartedly, humbly accept. Thank you, RJ, also. I mean, the only parting words, usually I say this. I'm like, when people watch a show or watch people talking about therapy, they're not, the light isn't going to click, and they're going to say, dang, now I got to go to therapy. And then call <laughs> up my insurance. Like, we're all real. That's not going to happen. <laughs> Almost everybody on here probably is not even going to Google. Uh, probably one will be hopeful. Yeah, sure, sure. We'll, we'll Google. But I would say the journey starts with you. There is a, a light at the end of the tunnel where there's a better you who could live better. And, I mean, you, you spoke to losing weight. That... There could be a mental health and an emotional health and stability that could have you feeling as great as a runner's high or after you get done with an hour and a half workout where you just feel like brand new. You just feel healthy. Imagine feeling like that. Not all the time, but majority of the time. And then when something wrong happens, you don't get triggered. You say, I got something that can handle this like it's nothing. And you could get back to peace. What you really want is inner peace. 
I'm telling y'all, there is a proven beaten path through science and studies with a proven professional that can get you to there. Now, if you're not going to do that, please do some self-work however you see fit. But I, I respect everyone's religion. I pray that y'all start doing the work because there is a better you at the end of this path and you will enjoy that person and that life. Thank you for the chance to speak. RJ, thank you for thinking of me. Uh, it does not miss me um, that even wanting my voice heard or opinion uh, in a in a shared space is uh, definitely uh, appreciative. So thank you. Yes, sir, man. And to both of you, man, I, you know, I, I can't do stuff like this without good people like you all that are willing to have these discussions. And I know they're difficult. I know it's not it's not lost on me how challenging it can, it can be no matter how many times I have these conversations. But I'm truly hoping that with more exposure and more uh, experience for people to listen to see people again that look like them and may talk like them and may have some similar life experiences like them, that they may be willing to actually start the process as you just beautifully laid out, they could start with. And so again, to you too, man, thank you so much for being here. And I'm hoping that, you know, this platform and the, more importantly, these conversations will continue. Cause again, it's not about me as an individual provider. It's really about getting people the level of encouragement needed to really get started as you both have pointed out. So I think we're going to call that one a wrap, man. So thank you all again. I'm gonna go thank ahead. you. Gonna...